Welcome. I am your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on social media at MMA LOTN. Joined as always by my Canadian brethren, Cody Saftik. You guys can follow him at CJ Saftik on Twitter. And we are here propping you up for UFC 277, headlined by an actual title fight and then a fake title fight in the co main event. Obviously, in the co main event, like I'm saying, we got Brandon Moreno taking on Kai Car France for the interim flyweight title. And then in the main event we got the rematch between juliana pena pulling off one of the biggest upsets in ufc history in their last fight taking on amanda nunes now this time around and hopefully we'll talk about it later obviously but i'm hoping we're getting a little bit more of a focused disciplined and motivated amanda nunes because i just don't think she was that the first time around we'll save that for the last uh breakdown that we're going to be doing on this card cody Always great catching up with you, my brother. How have you been doing? Yeah, good, man. All things considered, uh, decided to take a little early vacation. I see Mayo's going on vacation. And I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. Pack goes away <laughs> with his family. And then Paul's going on some like hatchback journey, like out in the wild kind of stuff. I'm like, damn, Paul's going on vacation. You know what? Little Cody deserves a vacay too. So thank you for accommodating. We normally do the show around 5 o'clock, and yeah. I think the people would rather see the show at 5 o'clock. But all the same, you're very accommodating and letting us go early. So uh, we've got a pay-per-view offering. It's not the, it would be a great fight night card, but not the greatest pay-per-view. But who cares? Whether you want to pay for it or not is not of our concern. If we can hit a couple props for you, make it worth your while, maybe that'll help out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I will say this, though, in regards to this pay-per-view. There might not be a lot of big names on them. There are a lot of fun fights, though, and that's usually the That's why I can't them. trash it. It's actually like a fun card. I just uh, I don't know what their definition of pay-per-view anymore is. One weak-ass title <laughs> fight. 280. One, one weak-ass title fight and a fake-ass title fight. But whatever, I digress. Whatever they want to do, not me. We, we want that Abu Dhabi pay-per-view every freaking mm -hmm. weekend, right? I'm sure you saw how stacked that one is. So I can't wait to break down that one once October rolls around. But that's like the level of pay-per-view most people are expecting, at least four times a year. So as long as they can deliver four times a year, considering how uh, paper-thin they're running that roster by having events pretty much every single weekend, as long as we can save up enough big names and enough big fights for one pay-per-view, uh, or sorry, four pay-per-views a year, I think people will be happy. All right, let's not waste too much more time, right? You, We got both, we got things to do after this, so we do want to get through this as uh, briefly and as efficiently as possible. But first, let's quickly go over the cloud bet props from UFC London this past weekend. Uh, first of which was, was the Curtis Blades takedowns over under four and a half. We got 15 seconds of that fight. There's no way we're going to hit that over. Back-to-back -back weekends of UFC pay our main events ending via injury within the first you know, minute or so of the fight taking place. So very unfortunate. There are under four and a half catches at minus 112. Uh, the team barstool performance score that ended up pretty hitting pretty easily here. The over 25 and a half as both potty, uh, potty Pimblet, <laughs> Patty Pimblet and uh, Molly McCann ended up uh, getting the finishes in their fight. The team Great Britain performance score, though, that did not even come near close to 133.5 that was set here. So the under cash is there at minus 118. I believe they totaled for about 90 points total uh, with only two of their guys getting a finish, uh, which was pa Patty and Molly there. Total takedowns on the card. Hence, even before we get to the main card, and Cody even tweeted at me saying, hey, what about that over his takedowns? Because we, not, we got like, Seven within the first couple fights, and then uh, Muhammad Makayev goes out there and scores 12 takedowns himself uh, in the third fight of the night. But I believe by the halfway point of the Mark D. Casey fight, that over ended up hitting with relative ease. 
Uh, I didn't see the number that actually ended up being the total amount, but it was definitely way over, over uh, 33 and a half. Uh, there was no fight of the night. So from what I've been told, anybody that wagered on the fight of the night got their money back. It ended up being a push. The UFC ended up giving out four performance bonuses instead than giving out a, a fight of the night bonus as well. And then lastly, fastest finish on the on the main card came down to Curtis Blades. 15 seconds, he goes out there and just breaks the leg of Tom Aspinall, whatever you want to call it, but he gets a 15-second finish there. <laughs> Same with Yair Rodriguez the week before. He was the quickest finish on the main card due to injury. So is Curtis Blades. And whoever had that uh, KO prop for Curtis Blades cashed that with relative ease as well. I think that was sitting in the plus 300 range. But uh, there you guys go. Cloudbat props for UFC London. Appreciate Cloudbat supporting the show as always. Also, shout out to betonline.ag, one of the best sports books out there for MMA, regional MMA, UFC, all that stuff. They got you covered, especially with them usually being the first guys on the block with the props out there. So uh, props and odds for every single fight. So make sure you guys check them out. Link is in the description below for the props and uh, sorry for betonline.ag. All right, let's get right into this 13-fight pay-per-view card, first of which we got Orion Kosi going up against a Blood Diamond in a welterweight bout. In terms of odds, we're looking at minus 180 on Kosi and plus 155 on Blood Diamond. I don't know what Blood Diamond did to the UFC matchmakers, but like, why are you getting grapplers back to back in your first UFC, two UFC fights? Right? We get it. He's the you know Marcos Mariano to Anderson Silva. He's the Chris Avila to Nate Diaz. He's the Artem Lobov to Conor McGregor in regards to his relationship with Israel Adesanya. That's why he's in the UFC, right? He's 34 years old with less than five professional MMA uh, uh, fights. It's clear as day why he's in the UFC, but you could do a little bit better in terms of the, the stylistic matchup you're giving this guy, right? Like, throw him in there with Phil Hawes, the last guy Orion Kosi fought. At least the guy that's going to go out there and try to bang with him. But no, they give him Jeremiah Wells, who finishes him, you know, with 30 seconds left in the first round by taking him down and grinding him out and then eventually getting that finish. And now here with Orion Kosi, you're getting a better wrestler than Jeremiah Wells, but in terms of BJJ, obviously Jeremiah Wells has that advantage over Kosi, but I think with the ease in which Kosi should be able to get this fight to the ground, that should open up those finishing opportunities for him pretty easily in this spot. So I am going with the wrestler, whoop-de-doo, you know, surprise, surprise, going with the wrestler in this spot. I do think he also gets it done relatively quickly. Round one for Kosi is plus 225, uh, but the other spot that I like is the under one and a half. There is that crazy chance that uh, Blood Diamond manages to land that knockout before Kosi drags this fight to the ground, which is why I don't mind the under one and a half either, right? I usually reserve the under one and a half for like uh, Terrence McKinney fights or heavyweight fights. But in this specific uh, situation, I feel like it's necessary. Both guys have finishing opportunities early in this fight. Obviously, Diamond on the feet with his knockout power, Kosi on the ground with his either BJJ or his ground and pound. Either way, I think we see this fight finish pretty quickly. I'm going to go Kosi. I'm going to go Kosi round one, but under one and a half at plus 105 is my favorite prop on this card. Cody, what are you thinking about this wrestler versus striker matchup? 
Yeah, I'm looking to piggyback on much what you're saying, but I'm not quite. I'm going to pay a little more juice. So you got the under one and a half. <clears throat> a lot of books are offering a fight does not complete two full rounds, and that's minus 150. Mm. And I like that a lot more because I could see it maybe getting to the dirty part of round two, but then eventually being a finish. And it's all what you're saying as well. Koski's got that wrestling experience. He's been training at a team alpha male. He should be able to go out there and, in theory, take Blood Diamond to the ground, right? It, funny enough, if you go to best fight odds, uh, Orion Koski versus Blood Diamond is set at a certain price. Orion Koski versus Mike Mathetha is also available at a much, uh, Koski's much bigger favorite. So it's like, if he's named Mike Mathetha, he's going to kill him. But if his name is Blood Diamond, I don't know, man. I don't know. And that's where it kind of gets the same thing with the Koski brothers, him and Lewis. Uh, they're front runners. They're good wrestlers. They're power guys. A lot of their regional show uh, victories are by quick finish. And you see that the longer that they're going to fight and they're going to get extended, it's going to be a problem against Rowe. That was the exact problem. He started off really good. And then the longer the fight went, Koski obviously gassed out. Now he hasn't fought in a year. You don't know if his gas tank's any better. You don't know if he switched up his game planning. You just know that he's a better wrestler than Blood Diamond. So probably does get him down to the ground. Maybe he gets him out of there quickly. But if he doesn't get out of the, uh, he doesn't finish him in the first round and it gets to a second round and it's back standing and he tires... Yeah, maybe he's open to some fly knee or some head kick or some whack thing. But in both scenarios, either Koski takes him down, has his way, wins early, you're going to hit the fights not completing two rounds. If Blood Diamond wears him out early, catches him late, probably catches him late in that second. And uh, I would take fight doesn't go the distance, but it's minus 260. So I, I would I'd rather just go fight doesn't complete two full rounds at minus 150, kind of play the in-between. If you are going to take Koski and you like Koski inside the distance, then at minus 105, you know, that's fair enough. But uh, this fight's kind of half greet. It should be a walk in the park. It really should. But even the Jeremiah Wells fight, he hurts his leg early in the first round, right? He kind of half struggles to get the takedown. As soon as he does get the takedown, it takes him three and a half minutes to establish top control before getting the submission. And he submits him late in the first. But keep in mind, this guy's a Henzo Gracie Philly BJJ black belt. Like, yeah. really good on the ground, right? So the fact that it took him that long, it's not like Blood Diamond's a complete fish out of water, right? If he can last with Ryan Koski, which is not crazy to think, then yeah, maybe he's able to start a second round. I don't think it gets to a third round. But if he's going to win, it's going to be a live bet scenario where drop the first round and then try to catch him late when the when the plus money's way better. I like it. I'm just hoping that we get violence to start off this card, no matter who Same ends up here. This will be a great start to the pay-per-view uh, card for us. All right. Let us move on to the next fight here. We got Nikolai Negomarianu going up against Ihor Pretoria. In terms of odds, we got minus one. Uh, minus 105. Wow, line is actually flipped. So I'm just going to call this uh, a pick em, but I am seeing minus 120-ish on the Nego Mariano side. Earlier this week, I saw Nego Mariano around plus 130-ish, plus 125. A ton of love coming in on him, especially as more news starts to leak about Ihor's uh, record, right? Very sketchy on that Ukrainian uh, scene. You know how was Ukrainian and had a sketchy record? Our guy Askar Mozrov, who found himself in and out of the UFC within a you know, the blink of an eye, pretty much. But uh, looking back at Ihor's uh, record, the guy, you know, facing very sketchy level of competition. I believe I put out a tweet out there that said he has a combined opponent record before his contender series fight was 74 and 87, which, you know, for the regionals, it's not bad. But the main part to key in on is 16 of those 21 opponents were either had a, a 500 or worse record. So he's going up there against guys that like, it seems like they just picked out of the crowd the night that they showed up for the fight. 
right? Like a lot of these guys are giving up takedowns with relative ease. A lot of these guys are showing that they're intimidated by Ehor right away, and they pretty much succumb to his power and his grappling immediately. Uh, other guys, you know, all they're rendered to is just big hook power shots. Like that's all they have with no gas tank. They, you know, Ehor survives an early onslaught and then eventually gets them out of there three minutes into the fight. There's even a fight where I saw one of these uh, Georgian guys, Georgie, I forgot what his full name was, but he he manages to get Ehor down without too much trouble. But like, I don't know what it is with WWFC, but these guys stand up their opponents or, or their fighters pretty much immediately, especially if they're not able to pass guard. Even if they're staying active enough in their guard by throwing pitter-patter shots and just trying to damage their opponent, the, the referees are like, nah, we want, we want fisticuffs. We want guys to go out there and throw leather, which is why they stood the fight up. When you see them stand the fight up, the guy that got the takedown starts huffing and puffing. I'm like, you got three minutes of cardio? What, what are you doing? And then Ehor just gets him out of there with uh, some big strikes, eventually finishes him there. But but Nego Mariano, not the greatest pre-UFC record either, right? The guy, he, I think it was like 16 and 87, his combined record of opponent before coming to the UFC. But he's gone into the UFC cage at least three times at this point. He's faced decent level of competition. I'm not calling, you know, Saperbeg, Safarov anything special or Kennedy and Zechiku anything special. But he's gone on there and shown that his durability can hold up against guys that are big punchers. And his, dur- uh, his gritty type of fighting style works on some of those guys as well which leads me to believe it could work on a guy like Ehor. Ehor will be the better striker and you'll be the faster fighter out of the two. But I'm hoping that Nego Mariano's durability will hold up, which will allow him to push this fight up against the cage, maybe land some takedowns. He's shown he has the cardio that he can do it for 15 minutes if he needs to, but there will be there will be opportunities for Ehor to land a big shot, possibly drop Nego Mariano and get him out of there. I'm banking on uh, Nikolai's uh, durability here. I'm hoping that he'll be able to take those shots from Ehor, keep moving forward, eventually break Ehor, and uh, grind this fight out. Uh, I'm not 100% sure he'll be able to finish him, which is why I'm kind of leaning on the decision prop, which is currently sitting around plus 300. Um, the over 2.5 at plus 110 isn't that... Uh, uh, isn't that bad either, in my opinion? But I believe there's a reason that we saw this line flip. The the value was clearly on Nego Mariano when he was at plus money. I personally got in at plus 125. Um, but uh, I do think he gr- grinds this out over 50 minutes, takes home a decision victory, plus 300. Well, what are you thinking here? Do you, do you think I'm being too harsh on Ehor? Do you think he actually wins this fight? Yeah, I don't think you're being too harsh on him. It looks a little bit suspect. The only one thing that I can give him is whereas Mozarov comes in and everybody's pointing out these glaring holes in his record and he had tried to change some things and this and that. I think Ehor is not, that's not the case. He just padded his record big time, padded his record. And when he got matched up against Lucas Sudolski, Lucas Sudolski is an undefeated Polish prospect. He's actually not all that bad. And he was a two to one favorite over Ehor, right? So Ehor had the same problems in that fight. He's a two to one dog. Guy showed up, guy came, and he swung bombs. That's the same thing with Mozarov. Mozarov showed up, and he came out, and he swung bombs. The problem is that Alonzo Menafield just level changed, took him to the ground, and smashed him from that yeah. position because he had no ground game, right? If you stood in front of him and decided to exchange with him, it doesn't matter if he's good or not. It doesn't matter if he's falsified his record or not. It doesn't matter if he's can crush or not. He's a human being standing in front of you throwing head kicks and, and str- big strikes with every power, ill intent. Guy that shows first round finishes on his record, it's just dangerous, right? The game plan to t- to beat these guys is take another ground where they're a lot more vulnerable and uh, you know expose them there. So potentially, but uh, 
you know, the game's weird with this record padding thing. Like, I don't even know what to say about it. You, you got a, com- a computer in front of you, correct? Yes, sir. Okay, check out check out Makayev on Tapology real quick. Just punch in uh, Muhammad Makayev. Sorry, just. Uh... Yes. Okay. Uh, sorry, I got his topology. So his topology shows 7 and 0. Okay, show 7 to 0. You scroll down, and then right there, bam, under where he trains out of, you see this Muhammad Makaya MMA fight record. And it says, one or more bouts in this fight's record has been flagged by topology of having potential issues with their ooh. legitimacy. In some cases, flag bouts do not count towards a, uh, a win loss record. So, Sure Dogs actually got Makaya as being like 8 0. Yes. Topology rocks a 7 to 0. And when you yep. go down to that fight in question, it's his second pro fight back in 2020 when he beat this guy named Hayden Sharif, the 51 second. TKO uh, to the body, right? This Hayden Sharif guy is 0-9. So because he's 0-9 and he was taking on a guy that was 20-0 as an amateur or like a 22-0 amateur and 1-0 as a pro already, they basically just said, listen, can't happen. Guy that's 0-9 is going to fight a guy that uh, of that level. So they flag it as this is, this is a can-crushing moment. You beat him in 50 seconds. It's not a real fight. They don't put it on his record. Interesting. Interesting because Eeyore, Eeyore's 11-2, and he fights a guy that's one and nine and beats yeah. him 40 seconds into the first round. Why wouldn't that be flat? What's the yeah, difference? that's weird. What's the difference? How can you go out and say that was a, a, a match, bad matchmaking and a can crushing opportunity to pad your record? And that wasn't. What's the difference? It's all the same. And then your record is largely all of that. Oh, and three. Oh, and four. Oh, and two. The oh, and three guy, he went the distance with him. Like, what? Yeah. You know, you're 14 and two. You're a finishing machine. Yeah, you're going the distance. The guys that are 0 and 3. He shows three amateur fights. Okay, two wins and a loss. The loss is from 2019. Yet at that point in his MMA career, he's already like <laughs> 12 and 2 as a pro, right? So how does he have an amateur loss? And then here's here's something more fucked up than that. These two wins as an amateur are at Bukaville Free Fight Cup Nine. The two wins, and they happened on the exact same day. So it's wow. two fights in one day as an amateur in 2019. As a pro. He fights, or sorry, as an amateur, he loses to this Sergey Mudrovsky at, wouldn't you know it, Bukovel Free Fight Cup 9, only it's a fucking month later. It's, yeah, what the It's hell? six weeks later, but it's the same card. It's the same card. And it's a loss. So did he lose as a pro and they decided, you know what, let's just throw that as an amateur loss to protect him? Could be. Could be. I seen this Ukrainian guy online explaining it as, terrible explanation, explaining it as, there's not a whole lot of opportunities for Ukrainian fighters here, so they'll fight pro and then they can't get fights. And then some amateur opportunity will jump up and they'll just take it because it's a fight. A fight's a fight. So sometimes they fight pro. Sometimes it doesn't they fight work pro. like that, Cody. We <laughs> all know this. That's what I'm saying, dude. That's what I'm saying. You'll see a lot of Russian fighters have the same thing. They'll have amateur losses that are uh, occurring during their pro career. But what it is is they're mislabeled combat Sambo matches. So what happens is they might be 6-0 and as a pro. They might compete at a combat Sambo championship, win two, three fights, lose one, lose a couple. You'll always see it'll be like it'll be like the Moscow Cup. You know, it'd be a combat yeah. sample tournament that got misidentified as an amateur MMA fight because it's pretty similar and it ends up on these pro guys' amateur record. That's fine. This is not combat sambo. This is he fought these guys, he would have lost one 2019's, you know, three years ago, but it's really not that long ago. And it just makes his whole record look totally murky. So Negamarion is not very good in the slightest bit. But if I will give the guy a pass on one thing, is that he is tough. Okay, we know that he's rock some. Big shots against Alexa Kamor and ate all of them. He took some big shots against Kenny and Jaku. He uh, ate all of them. There's a good argument. He lost both those fights, but he ends up getting gifted split decisions in both occurrences because of his willingness to go forward, bite down on his mouthpiece, and make something happen. But low-key, I'll give this guy something. When he fought uh, Saperbek Safarov in his debut, off. 
This guy yeah. is awful. But he's 24 years old and fresh from Romania. Then he starts hanging on, hanging around Las Vegas. And between that fight, he took two years off. Three years off he takes, right? Comes back, sorry, two full years later against Kmore. Looks much better. Took a beating, but looked better. Beats Ike Villanueva, which is a layup, but he made it look like a layup. He absolutely starched him. And then Kennedy's a pretty decent guy. Close fight, definitely got outstruck, but wore him down, came forward, scored a takedown, you know, like all good stuff. Now he's only 27. He's still in Las Vegas. He's only maturing and getting a little bit better. And I think he's just going to have to overcome a tough three, four minutes against Ehor, take his best shots, wear him down. And then uh, you said you like the decision. I could see that happening. I totally could. I could see him just like wearing him out in the first round, maybe scoring a takedown, maybe just grinding him up against the cage and the fight goes 15. I could also see Ehor just throwing caution to the wind in the first three or four minutes and just gassing himself out and, you know, Herbert Burns style, you know, I'm just going to go hard for three minutes and then anybody, Bill Aljeo finishes him. And Bill's, Bill's a stud, but Bill don't finish that. I know. I was hoping Bill held on for another minute or so, so they finished him in the third. I had round three slash decision at plus 140. God damn it. It's not that one guy's a finisher. It's that one guy's got a good gas tank, and one guy's just going to give it to you, right? So in Ehor's case, I seen him beat Sadolsky, who was decent, and it was a quick finish. But I don't know at a high level in the UFC in front of a live crowd in Texas who are going to be you know, going crazy, and they want to see blood and sweat, and you go out there and throw a bunch of high kicks and – you know, push their pace for three minutes and all of a sudden this tough Romanian guy with a, you know, a concrete head on him is taking all your best shots, demoralizing, tiring. He's not going to go anywhere. And you can make the argument he's maturing. He's on a three fight winning streak in the UFC, which has to count for something. He's got some decent power. He's got, you know, that grit and that grind and enough of a chin to early the weather storm. So in terms of props, I'd be, again, initially I looked at the fight not to go the distance at minus 205, you know, not terrible, but I feel like you could potentially do better. And I really do think that uh, it's going to be, uh, sorry, Nigga Mariano, that's going to come out by victory. So I kind of had him, and I kind of think that he might be able to grind him and get that TKO, which is plus 400. It'd be a bit of a sprinkle spot, you know, if you want to take the safe route fight doesn't go the distance if you want to go with it nega marianu by uh inside the distance or by tko specifically so you know this is a greasy fight for sure but uh there's enough there's enough red flags on you or to just make me want to pass on that you know yeah exactly let's see what this guy actually brings to the table because again even nega marianu came into the ufc with a very sketchy record in terms not as like sketchy in terms of legitimacy to it but like the level of competition that he was going up against was very sketchy so we'll see if uh Pretoria can uh you know dispel all those things and come in here and pull off his first victory inside the ufc uh yeah cody does like Pretoria to win inside round one if he wins at all uh that's currently sitting at plus 350 so in case you guys are enthused by that there you guys go all right yeah, Go ahead. yeah. No, I was gonna say Nick Mariano is like the, the big fault on him is that he ain't no uh, you know Pernell Whitaker, he ain't no Floyd yeah. Mayweather, he ain't no defensive Marvel man. Like this He's guy, gonna get hit. He, he wears going to get hit. So <laughs> so Eeyore's gonna have chances to put him away. We're, you and I are just both on the same page. We think he's just gonna take that beat Homer Simpson style, and then I'm hoping just push over Boxcar Joe and put him put a put, push over Boxcar Ehor and call it a night. <laughs> I love it. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We're going to be talking about a women's bantamweight belt between Ji Yoon Kim and Jocelyn Edwards. Uh, Edwards is stepping in on short notice here against uh, for sorry uh, Maria Agapova, who unfortunately had to pull out. But uh, I'm sure Kim is still excited to get in there and, and finally step inside the cage and try to snap this three fight losing streak she's on. Right? It shouldn't be. A three-fight losing streak. She did outstrike Priscilla Cashera by 68 significant strikes in her last bout, but still ended up coming out on the losing end. But I think that this fight 
Hopefully, we'll go a different way for her. She, in terms of odds, she is the slight underdog here at plus one hundred, minus one twenty is the return on Jocelyn Edwards. I'm liking the Kim side here, man. I think she's the better technical striker. I think she has more pop on her shots than what Edwards brings to the table. Um, I do think that Edwards, even though she's good, good in terms of her output and her volume, uh, she might not be the one landing the better strikes here. I think Kim can uh, traverse the cage well enough. I think her movement over there to uh, to Bangtown Muay Thai as well as Tiger Muay Thai seems like she's been splitting time there uh, between those two camps. I think those two spots will do her well here in terms of being able to put together the strikes that she needs to to land the more damaging blows. And possibly even fight a finish like we saw jocelyn edwards hurt numerous times by ramona fucking pasquale in her last fight but she managed to tough it out in both those spots and uh, eventually get the victory of her own because ramona had nothing else right she her initial initial game plan was to try to get this fight to the mat and grind her out there but she couldn't even get the fight to the mat but she did find some success with some body shots against edwards and we have seen the last finish on kim's record via uh, but by KO was actually uh, body shots to uh, Nadia Kasim. Now I get it. Nadia Kasim is just, you know, the, the can of all cans when we're talking about women's MMA. But we have seen Jocelyn, you know, kind of vulnerable to the body, similar to that w- small phase that Matt Brown went through, right? Anybody's like, even if you just like raspberry his belly button, this guy's going to fall over and just cringe in pain. That's probably what we're going to be ending up seeing here from the Jocelyn Edwards side. If Ken, Kim can work that body well enough with her leg kicks, with her hooks, all that stuff, work the body as much as she can, get Jocelyn Edwards to crumple over and possibly finish this off with the KO. You got to believe that she's scared of the judges' scorecards, right? The Molly McCann fight, close. I scored it for Molly McCann, but like a lot of people thought Kim deserved to win that fight as well. But she definitely deserved to win the Priscilla Cachoeira fight. She definitely won those first two rounds, but she still got robbed by the judges. So how do we rectify that? Let's try to get the judges out of there. Let's hope that Kim can go out there and land those big strikes, work the body as best as she can, and eventually get a finish in her own right. I think she's a better striker. She will have more pop on her shots, like I said. And I'm not going to completely disregard a potential takedown type game plan here from Kim. Not saying that's going to be the, the the brunt of her game plan, but you know it's hard to truly put total confidence in that considering she's never shot a takedown in her professional UFC career. But given the scenario that she's in right now with her back against the wall, you know, w- with the UFC potentially putting her on the chopping block, I wouldn't be surprised to see her reach into her bag of tricks and possibly try to pull that out, especially working with, you know, the Bank Tower head coach. Everybody knows George Hickman, former head coach of Tiger White Tai, came over to Tiger White Tai as a wrestling coach. We've seen him put those grappling chops into fighters like Loma Lukbunmi, Let's see if he can do that here against Shi Yun Kim as well. But even if this fight does not hit the mat, again, not a high probability considering her lack of going for takedowns in previous UFC fights, I still feel comfortable enough that she's the better striker, right? She will be able to land the more damaging blows, and hopefully the judges are able to see that here. We are in Texas, right? That's always the big thing. Just make sure that, you know, if you're betting a fight that's likely to go to a decision, make sure you feel convicted enough about it. I personally pulled the trigger on Ji-Yoon Kim at plus 115. Now she's closer to plus 100, so it seems like there's money coming in on her. But I am going to take a shot on her plus 1,000 via KO spot because I think it's very live here against uh, Jocelyn Edwards. So pick is Kim. Prop will be Kim by KO. Am I am I off my rocker here, Cody? What are you thinking? No, I don't think you're off your rocker. You pretty much nailed everything that I would want to say other than I'm not taking the KO, I'm taking the decision. Like, I think that she could outstrike her and put up some volume for sure, but I don't know that it's enough to knock her out. It's women's 135. Jocelyn Edwards is actually 
fought Ramona Pascual at 145, right? So she's coming back down to her natural weight class. She's durable enough that I think, and a fellow striker. I think maybe she tries to grapple in some spots. They strike in some spots. It's going to be a competitive enough fight. I think Jean King can win that fight, but uh, I don't necessarily think she comes out there and, and gets the knockout. Draining with George Hickman, that's going to help. Spending all that time in Las Vegas, that certainly did help. Uh, but I think she's going to use all of that grappling and wrestling to potentially just stuff everything that Edwards brings up, win those clinch exchanges, try to put up some superior volume. And I understand that she doesn't want to go to the judges' scorecards, but it's a sad reality for a lot of fighters. It's just going to happen, right? So unless your opponent curls over, Kerber Burns, you've got to settle for a lot of these. I need to fight for a hard 15 minutes. And more often than not, she uh, she does. But this is somebody who, you know, Jin Yu Frey was in a similar situation where it's like, oh, man, she's lost three fights in a row. It's like she's due for a win because she's got some skill and eventually something's going to click and she will pick one up. And I feel that's the case with Kim. Kim had a very close, razor close first round against Alexa Grasso who's a top five contender in the division. So it's impressive in its own right. And she lasted the whole 15 minutes. She she put up some decent enough volume. It was a decent enough fight, but, but specifically the first round. The Molly McCann fight, she outstrikes Molly McCann in the first round and the third round. Very close fight. And Molly McCann, for what she is, is a very serviceable gatekeeper, top 10-ish type fighter who uh, is known to go out there and swarm opponents. Yet Kim stood tit for tat with her and put up the volume. So even though she lost, very encouraging. The fight with Priscilla, Priscilla Cachuera, she outstrikes her by a large margin in all three rounds. Overall, 170 to 102, but some flashy elbow strikes in the third round caused the judges to put down the other name. So she's never quite there, but she's always in it. And I do think that she's going to get over the hump finally and pick this one up. But I just think that the decision will go in her favor. So for that reason, I took the uh, Ji Yun Kim by decision plus 165. Now let's get a little gracier with it, right? Your book will likely offer you, because mine does anyways, but uh, well, once one major book does it, a lot will piggyback on it. So just see if it's available. But Ji Yun Kim by majority decision or split decision is plus 800. Now we know this is going to be probably a competitive fight, largely a striking affair. Uh, Edwards is able to put up some decent volume. We just think Kim will have a little bit more. It'll be close. It's women's MMA. They're generally these close decisions anyways. Kim's usually in a lot of close decisions and we're in Texas. It's got split <laughs> written all over it, right? So if you're Camp Edwards, maybe you like the Edwards by split prop. If you're Kim, and this is just, it's plus 800, right? You're not putting a huge amount. It's just like a little filler, but the more safer it would be the Kim by decision plus 165. The punt play would be the Kim by split or majority at plus 800 just for fun there you guys go uh there is a cloud bet prop on this fight which i'll pose this question to you cody um in total uh so we're going to get total significant strikes between the two combined is uh over under a 149 and a half significant strikes funnily enough both women in half of their fights have gone over that so two out of the four fights for um, Edwards have gone over the 149 and a half significant strikes. And I believe four out of the eight for Kim have gone over the, over that 149 and a half. Well, what are you thinking here? Personally, I'm going to go over, I'm going to go over 149 and a half. That may not hit, especially if Kim uh, ends up getting the KO, which I'm hopefully predicting will, will come to fruition here. But more often than not, this will likely go to a decision. Hence why KO prop is plus 1000, right? But, uh, yeah, if they go to a decision, gotta feel good about that over 149 and a half right yeah it almost seems like a trap right like i thought it was going to be set a little higher maybe 170 180 even close to 200 considering yeah. both women have a good opportunity to land 100 significant strikes each the two fights that jocelyn edwards hasn't put up good numbers in 
was the Jesse Jess Rose Clark fight and the Carol Rosa fight, but she gives up five takedowns to Jesse Jess, four takedowns to Carol Rosa. So yeah, she doesn't land those ones because she's getting taken down. Ah, you think it's possible? I guess it is. I don't think Kim's going to wrestle her. I think they're both going to stand. They're both going to strike. Yeah. And for that reason, they're both getting at least 80 significant strikes each, which puts you at 160, which is the over. So I, I would say the over on the strikes for sure. But it's MMA. A knockout would screw you. And Kim having a coach that tells her, like, yo, let's exploit this shaky ground game would also probably screw you. So you need a slugfest. Uh, I will say this, though. Uh, 164 significant strikes is what Jocelyn Edwards put up in her last fight against Ramona Pasquale. Uh, total, she had 175. So they're labeling 11 of those strikes not significant. I'd say there was a lot more not significant strikes considering all those pitter-patter leg kicks she was landing throughout that fight. Yeah, well, I always say it's it's tough because you don't know who exactly is is, is yeah. taking count of what is significant because it could change. If it's a person, there's no robot doing it. It's a person, right? Yeah. And it just yeah. changes from thing to thing. I remember I did punch stats for a charity boxing match one time, and uh, Corey Erdman were there. We're doing punch stats for fun. And, uh, well, it wasn't for fun. It was for the broadcast. But I would always have my fighters outlanding him every time. Yeah. And yet there was rounds where his fighter was winning. So I was like, why is that? And then I talked to him afterwards. We're having a couple of beers, and you know, and, and he says, "Well, you're counting a lot of shots to the glove. It's a block shot, and you're counting yeah. it as a punch landed. And it's not a punch landed. Punch landed is you hit the guy clean in the face, hit the guy clean in the body. You catch it on the elbow. But what I'm seeing, and this is years ago, what I'm seeing is a punch did land. It doesn't matter if I punched your elbow. It doesn't matter if I punched your shoulder. I punched you. That's a strike landed. He's looking at it as a clean strike landed." There's yeah. two differences there, right? So <clears throat> we've seen fights where, what was that one fight? I feel like it was Park, maybe. Uh, oh, yeah. He, but the, by yes. the numbers, it was like he landed 22, but the insignificant strikes was like 200, yeah. right? So how, how is that? They even well, change, they even changed the DraftKings scoring system because of that fight. Yeah, so there's going to be these outlier instances where it's just like, well, that wasn't significant to me, but it may have been significant to somebody else on some other day, right? And uh, I've always, I've always thought about that conversation I had with him, where and 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 I'm not even saying he's 100 right, and I was wrong, and like, yo, he's right, my shots weren't landing clean. It's that what is your definition of a punch landed? And this was a boxing match, so in a boxing match, boxing is very much you need to hit the target, and then they ain't like that dog. I'll break anything I can get if I can hit you in the hip. If I can, they, they, they elbow you in the thigh. They stomp on your foot. If you seen a guy stomp on a guy's foot and the foot broke and he fell over and that was the end of the fight, would anybody be like, dude, that was dirty? Or who would it be like, had to do what he had exactly. to do to win, yeah, right? Exactly. That's the fight game, baby. That's the fight game. So yeah. I, I, it's definitely subjective. When the winner or the loser, you know, subjective in terms of the judges' scorecards, but at the end of the day, it's clear. But stuff like significant uh, scores, uh, certain fantasy DraftKings points, certain other fantasy systems where it's like, this is worth this much. What's a takedown? Well, you need three seconds of ground control. It's yep. like, hey, well, Makayev suplexed him on his head, and then Johnson got up right away. Is that a takedown? Because I can sure as hell tell you he hit the ground, maybe for two seconds, but was a hell of a dump on his face right doesn't that count for something so subjective some of these uh these yeah. scoring things so yes i'm gonna take the over on the significant strike sounds like you are but why i yeah. say it sounds like a trap line to me is it looks too good to be true and oftentimes yeah. if it looks too good to be true it is why is it because they're gonna get into a clinch fest and kim is gonna take her down and they're not gonna score it the way you think and you're gonna complain online to somebody right exactly all right well again me and cody both going with the overs here hopefully it is not a trap line like you're saying 
unless Kim goes out there and actually gets a KO because I'll be happy with clashing that plus 1,000 ticket. All right, let us move on to the next fight here. We're going to be talking about Michael Morales taking on short notice replacement Adam Fugit. Uh, he actually stepped in on short notice, if I'm not mistaken, in his last fight as well to take on Solomon Renfro uh, and managed to finish him within 43 seconds uh, and uh, yet yeah, uh, pull off a big upset there as a plus 400 underdog. Now here he comes in once again as a plus 400 underdog against the guy Michael Morales who got his first win in the UFC against Trevin Giles last time around where he able he was able to start him and finish him relatively quickly. That was Giles' first fight actually down to 170 pounds as well. It always sucks when you see a guy put that much dedication into a training camp to remain disciplined so that he can finally make a weight class he's never made before. And then it all comes blowing up in his face once he gets knocked out as the durability more often than not does not hold up. Reminds me of TJ Dillashaw going down to flyweight and fighting Henry Cejudo and getting finished quick there. But uh, here, Adam Fugit, you know, I, when I re started researching this fight, I thought it was just going to be a free square on Michael Morales, right? Minus 500 favorite, minus 600 favorite. You expect him to go out there and just get that quick finish. But like as I start looking into this Adam kid, I, I am somewhat impressed with what I'm seeing. Like his fighting style, all offense, all forward, has a, you know, okay wrestling background, right? He, he wrestled in call or sorry, a high school and he also wrestled in community college as well. But the way he implies it or implements it with his MMA game, I'm quite impressed, right? He mixes his strikes very well. His combinations uh, changes levels very well. Uh, does a good job in terms of his cage control, dragging fights to the ground if he needs to. Uh, his control on the mat, not the greatest, but his cardio allows him to continue to get either mat returns or get back to the feet, get back to his striking, and then eventually land another takedown later in his fights. I, I don't think this kid should be a plus 400 underdog, in my opinion. Like, I think he has all the chops to go out there and potentially show the holes in a kid who's only, what, 22 years old right now and uh, Michael Morales. Like, the kid's good. Don't get me wrong. I think he has a high potential and high, high ceiling, but we still need to see him go out there and continue to prove that. Now, I, I said something some people might find a little controversial earlier this week in regards to this possibly being Morales' toughest test to date. And what I mean by that is, yes, Trevin Giles is probably the more the most skilled fighter that Michael Morales has fought, but we knew going down a weight class, he was sacrificing his durability, which is already an issue, and he ultimately ended up paying for it there. But with Fugit, if his durability holds up here, he could put Morales through the ringer here. Vera Tenica on the Contender Series was supposed to be the guy that did it. He ultimately failed, and his confidence seemed to drop as that fight went on, and he see Morales start to take over after that. But, like, Fugit does not seem like a guy that really gives up on himself. Yes, he got KO'd, uh, I believe, four years ago. I might be off on that, maybe three years ago. But that is absolutely live in the spot, right? That There's a reason that Morales' KO is minus 120 in the spot, because it's absolutely possible. But like sometimes you got to give leeway to some of these guys that are big underdogs and say they might actually have a chance. And I truly think that this Fugate guy has a chance as long as he uh, his cardio and his durability is in check because I think he can put Morales to the ringer. It, maybe not land consistent takedowns and get top control, uh, you know, by by vast amounts of numbers, but at least it should keep Morales busy enough um, and, and Fugate busy enough offensively that he starts scoring well on the judges' scorecards. Fugit by decision is currently sitting around plus 1200, which I think is, you know, obviously he's a plus 400 on the money line. So it makes sense why he, his prop would be that large, but he is absolutely live to go off and pull the upside here. As long as he's prepared, he strikes me as one of those guys that stays in shape 
so that he can take these short notice opportunities when they uh, present themselves, especially a short notice UFC opportunity to finally make it to the big stage. Um, I, I think he can. I think he has a shot to pull it off. I'm going to take an official shot on him, uh, a half unit shot uh, once he reaches plus 500, because I know people are just going to be stacking Morales into the parlays over the next couple of days. That should give us a better line on Fugit, which is why I'm waiting on it. But his decision prop at plus 1200 is absolutely crazy to me so uh, i'm going to take a shot on that myself as well morales by ko is the obvious play here but if you want to think about it a little bit deeper i think fugit can go out there and make this uh, a pretty grindy fight that morales will struggle with uh, especially if his rawness and greenness continues to show through his game so um yeah official prediction will be morales by ko but i do like fugit by decision at plus 1200 what are you thinking here, Cody? Yeah, I'm going to take the Morales by KO. I mean, I think you bring up a lot of great points, but at the same time, I don't think Fugit is in the best position to necessarily win. You mentioned you thought he was one of these stay-ready guys so that he could go out. I don't know if that's the case. He took that fight with Solomon Renfro on short notice. He hadn't fought in two years, right? He'd been in the sidelines. Whether he was injured, whether he was having canceled bouts, I don't know, but he jumps into a spot as a plus 350 dog against Solomon Renfro and catches him. My opinion, Solomon Renfro is just maybe not all that good, but doesn't matter. That's not here nor there. You jump from that right to a spot in the UFC, so I think it is a still a big jump. And I know he's talented, BJJ Black Belt. I mean, the guy's had some decent grappling success. Uh, he's got some college background in the wrestling department. He's uh, got good gas tank. He's got a lot of problems that would, he would present for somebody. He's 33 years old. That probably likely means he's near, is, you know, not near the end of the line in the slightest bit, but like, is he going to make these huge jumps in progression? Is he going to drastically change how he fights? No, probably not. But he's 10 years older than Morales, so that's got to be an advantage. He's got that old man strength. He's more seasoned. He's more experienced. That's all good stuff. That all makes him a live dog. I understand that. But yeah, I just, I like what I see out of Morales. Like when we first saw him against this Nikolai Vretnikov, what did we know about him? Nothing. He's from Ecuador and he's probably fought a bunch of nobodies in South America. And oh, it says he was on the Ecuadorian national wrestling team. What yeah. does that mean? <laughs> Dude, this guy was okay, man. Two to one dog against Vretnikov and he just yeah. grinded him down. Four takedowns. Outstruck him put a pace on him, put a beating on him. He's 22 years old. Like, shit, dude, this guy might be my my next Enrique Barzola. A little bit raw, a little bit green, but fucking strong and willing to get in there and engage. So when they booked him against Trevin Giles, Giles, of course, has seven UFC fights at the time. He's fought in some decent competition. He's a former middleweight. He had some success grappling with uh, who's a big, big old Georgian guy? He loved Dolitz, Roman Dolitz. He had yes. success grappling Dolitz, who's a big 205er. Somehow makes 85. Nobody knows how, right? So Giles is okay enough to go out there and just absolutely put it on him, which I understand people have beaten Giles, but they generally tire him out, put him away in the third, not I'm going to walk out and clock you. So yeah, he's 23 years old, but I think he's making some rapid growths to his game. He's actually a BJJ brown belt. He's a judo brown belt. And of course, he's got that wrestling experience as well. Physically, he's very strong. And I'm not saying like all these guys from impoverished countries just fight harder for it, but like they generally do. Like, I don't know how else to say it in that. Like, I think he's going to go out there, fight his heart out. He's not going to pull an action, man. And move side to side and, and pitter-patter. Like, I think he's going to scrap because this is a big opportunity for him. He's initially supposed to take on Ramiz Brahimaj. So if you're his coaching staff, you have to look at that as this guy is, a, I think he's a brown belt now as well, but a decent enough grappler, has like seven first-round submission wins, as a guy that's going to go and test you early and has a little bit of wrestling in his back pocket. Ramiz Brahimaj is also from Texas, and we're fighting in Texas. So to have Ramiz fall off and to bring this guy in from 
you know, he's not the hometown guy anymore. He's on short notice. His wrestling is decent by some standards, but maybe not enough to get Morales down. His striking's not all that good. His the knockout loss that you mentioned ago, it is four years ago. But uh, you know, Kalen Hill fought in the contender series, went the distance with Impa Kinsanganai, but you know, is not not necessarily, you know, a top guy by no stretch. So I just think Morales is gonna stuff the takedowns, box him up, take him into some deeper waters, and eventually clip him and put him away. So I did end up taking that Morales up by TKO at minus 120. But you bring up enough questions and you bring up enough valid points that it's like, you know, I ended up liking this prop a lot and I use it up. You know, I'll give you a little bit of, you know, uh, spoiler alert. I use it as one of my top three plays this week because I think Morales is going to break this guy and finish him. But yeah, if you're if you're looking to parlay a guy at the top of the ticket this week, maybe Morales should be bumped down a line, even though he's a huge favorite just because he still is young and you know, fuck it is not exactly the worst guy going. So I hear what you're saying. I like it. All right. Let us move on to the next fight here. We got Jakar Close taking on Rafa Garcia. In terms of odd, the usual chalk that we see on Jakar Close is present here. Minus 210 is what he's at. Plus 180, the return on Rafa Garcia. Uh, Jakar Close, you know, watch his last fight and you'd assume this guy's a knockout artist, right? Goes out there and hurts Brandon Jenkins multiple times, eventually finishing him early in that second round. Heck, even if you want to go back to the Benio Darius fight and watch mm-hmm. that second round where they just throw uh, absolute hell at each other and obviously Benio comes out on the winning end. But it could have easily have been Jakar Close as he had Benio Darius on skates plenty uh, in that second round. Um, very solid showcasing from him in that uh, first round, though, of the Benio Darius fight in regards to his submission defense. Having Benio Darius on your back for that long and still surviving to tell the tale solid you got my respect essentially but then obviously he got knocked to shit in his uh in the next round there but more often than not we see jacar close in close fights right like he goes out there pushes his opponents up against the cage very methodically but like uninspiringly outstriking these guys from the outside just you know staying active enough with his uh his leg kicking game which is something that he you know he he leans on a lot he leans on a lot just because he's looking for something to put in between those kicks, but he's throwing the kicks out there just to remain active enough to get his opponent thinking about something. Uh, Garcia, on the other hand, you know, his striking style is pretty much, you know, those wide winging hooks, likes to look for the knockout. Um, he has a decent wrestling game as well, which he showcased in his last couple of fights. He obviously dispatched of our fellow Canadian Jesse Ronson in his last fight. But I think his uh, two-fight winning streak here is going to come to a close as we see Jakar Close go back to what he's usually been inside the UFC, right? That guy that just grinds out his opponents enough so that he can go out there and get that decision victory. Or maybe he's fallen in love with this knockout power and he wants to go out there and try to test that chin of Rafa Garcia and get him out of there. Usually that's not that great for your your gas tank and your cardio, so we'll see how how well he uh, distributes uh, his gas tank throughout this fight. Uh, to me, Garcia seems like a very durable fighter. And we saw Nazra Hakpras land a ton of strikes on him and uh, still not be able to get him out of there. And that's something that we know Nazra is kind of known for is like landing those big strikes and maybe not totally finishing his opponents, but he's able to land knockdowns and truly hurt his opponents. Uh, the exact number here that Hakpras landed on him was 99 significant strikes. Um, I don't know why I thought it was like 120, but still the way he fought him, made it look like it was almost 120 strikes that he landed on him. Just could not miss that night. But I do like uh, I, I do like the close side here. Not so privy on the, the money line as I do want to continue to see what version of Jakar Close we're going to get. Like, 
I, I don't know if that whole Jeremy Stevens debacle was a was a heel turn for him, where he's just like, okay, you know what, I'm gonna go out there and start knocking motherfuckers out, and we'll try to you know create a more more zest behind my name more more of a pop behind my name but if he goes out there and does what he's done for the majority of his mma career and that's win decisions against guys like bobby green he could probably do that here as well so plus 100 for close by decision i feel is the play but i'm not gonna count out close by ko at plus 300 if he does go out there and just believes in this new pound newfound power that he believes he has he, he was knocking out guys before his ufc run then he came into the ufc and just kept decisioning guys which is why everybody thinks he's a decision machine that is absolutely likely and we talk about this every single week cody once you get into the ufc it gets harder and harder to finish guys was brandon jenkins even ufc level to begin with maybe not but uh, Rafa Garcia, a couple wins in the UFC now you see that he probably has what it takes to you know stay in the ufc long enough uh, that he can showcase his durability against close here. I'll go close via decision plus 100. What are you thinking? Yeah, so I think close it, it wants to be a striker now. He definitely wants to see KOs. He definitely wants to let his hands go. And I think he's going to try to strike with half a Garcia. Uh, I, I, I just don't think he's going to necessarily get the knockout. Like, I lean towards him being more of a decision guy. But it's not for no effort. Like, I know what you're saying. Maybe the Jeremy Stevens debacle changed him and he decided to come back a different guy. But... Prior to that, his fight with Christos Giagos, he landed 99 significant strikes over 15. 41 of those significant strikes in the third round alone, just biting down and throwing wild with him, right? It was a high-paced fight. Uh, you could see that he wants to strike in a whole lot of spots. His wrestling was okay that night as well, but he's seeking, actively seeking for the finish. The fight with Benil Darius, he got taken down in the first, so he gets nothing going. And in the second, he comes out and gets to swinging again. So, I mean, I, th I think he has Benil hurt and he almost has him. And then that fight with Jeremy Stevens, he was likely going to swing with him. Unfortunately, he suffers like some crazy whiplash, which apparently was like almost career ending. So I'm always bugged out about that. Like I'm the idiot that had money on uh, Brian Ortega, right? And then he dislocates his shoulder. I, I'm the idiot that had money on Tom Aspinall. The guy just like breaks his leg. Like, you know, I, I'm going to be the idiot that's going to have money on Jakar Close and he's just going to like whiplash his neck or something on the takedown. <laughs> and that'll be like the end of it. So, you know, I'm partly worried about that. But no, the Brendan Jenkins fight, he did the same thing he was doing in previous fights. It's just he's taking on Brendan Jenkins, right? The guy's the guy's like known as like the highlight kid or something uh, because he's either on the proper end of the highlight or the other end of the highlight. The guy just goes out there and scraps. He's not UFC quality. It was a good comeback fight for Jakar Close. The UFC felt they owed him one. They gave him one fine. He's going to come down here. He's going to look to throw down and scrap, but I don't necessarily think he uh, he he knocks out Rafa Garcia. I think he's just going to try to stuff more takedowns than not and ever so slightly edge him out. Here are the couple things that I am worried about. Rafa Garcia might, might get a de decent pop from the crowd. So if he can keep this thing competitive, he could be in for like one of these greasy decisions. We know that Close is mostly a decision guy. And truthfully, Close is sometimes in these close decisions. He did not beat Bobby Green. It'll tell you it's a unanimous decision, but you rewatch it and it's like, that's, uh, you know, probably not the right call on that one. Um, he's sometimes in these fights that are just a little bit too close for comfort. And I think that Rafa Garcia could try to hustle him up. Here's the other thing is that Dracar Close generally gives up takedowns in almost all of his fights. He gave up two to Mark Casey. He gave up one to David Tamor. He gave up one to Lando Venata. Gave up one to Bobby Green. Gave up two to Christos Giagos. Gave one to Bidnail Dariush. <sighs> 
some of those guys are decent wrestlers, like a Benil Dariush, like a Martia Casey, right? Some of those guys aren't good wrestlers, like a David Tamor or a Bobby Green, right? So giving up takedowns to them, it's just he, he's prone to get taken down. And what you've seen with Rafa Garcia is ever since the Nazareth Hack Cross fight, which he looks as, you know, he didn't get no takedowns. Ever since then, he's been wrestling and he's been wrestling hard. Five takedowns against Grusemacher, seven against Nate Levy. Uh, another three against Jesse Ronson before eventually putting him away. Even in that Nate Levy fight, he gets seven of 12 takedowns. So yes, he gets seven, but the fact that he shot 12 shows that he was just sticking to the game plan of wrestle, wrestle, wrestle. And I think that could be effective against close. Maybe not effective to soundly defeat him easily and everybody knows you're the victor, but maybe to keep this fight close and cause it to go to the scorecards and cause a little bit of dissension or a little bit of you know disturbance amongst the fans. You know, who won that? Was it more control from Garcia in the odd takedown or was it the flashy combination that close landed uh, here and there? They both got decent cardio. Rafa Garcia is still young, getting better. And, you know, he shows some decent lines on his card. But, yeah, I I, I, I just I got to go back to close as the actual prospect. He's fought at a way better level. He is on his little comeback tour. The couple years off hasn't hurt him. It's matured him. And, you know, I just I'm hoping he's getting back. He's dating Courtney Casey now. Like, you're with somebody that's also in the UFC. They've got sponsorships. They've got full-time camps going. Like, I, I just think... He'll stuff more takedowns than not and let's more catch more eye casting blows. So for that reason, I went with close, close by decision. But um, yeah, like I, I in Texas, you want to stay away from these fights that are going to go 15, right? You want the guy that's probably going to get a finish uh, because I, I'm not sold on close to somehow a finisher all of a sudden. And this thing might go to decision. It might be a little bit greasier than you'd like. Yeah, it might not be the greatest. Yeah, it, it honestly reminds me of uh, Ricky Simone, who like it, it could go the Ricky Simone way of things, or it could just go back to being close via decision for eternity, right? Ricky Simone, mainly a, a, a decision machine, goes out there, rocks out, uh, knocks out half yellow sun cell. We're just going to chalk that up to, you know, a sun cell's maybe getting old. He can start to succumb to this part. Then he goes out there and finishes Brett Johns as well, who's never been finished sure. either. So yeah. it could go go either way but his history tells us that close more often not goes out there and wins decisions hopefully that stays true here especially if anybody takes a shot on uh close via decision here at plus 100 all right let's move on to the next fight here interested to hear your thoughts about this one we got Dontel mays going up against hamdi abdel wahab in terms of odds we are now looking at minus 190 on Dontel mays plus 160 the return on hamdi Mays was closer to, you know, pickums and minus 120, minus 130 earlier this week. The secret has gotten out that this Hamdi kid might be a little bit of a fraud in terms of his ability to compete at a high level, which is why all this money has ro rolled in on Dontel Mays. Now, again, let's not get it twisted. At the end of the day, it is still Dontel Mays. It is a guy that has lost via third round TKO to Alan fucking Crowder. Let's not get that out of our head, right? Sure, he's made improvements since then. Sure, it took him three Dana White contender series fights to eventually make it to the UFC. But he's showcasing solid improvements on a fight-to-fight -fight basis, right? He fights like a middleweight at heavyweight in the sense that he moves decently. He relies on output. His wrestling game is starting to get up there as well, just as we saw in his fight against Josh Parisian. Um, he has a solid all-around game, right? Very, very impressive, uh, at least in terms of the improvements that he's been showing. Uh, on the flip side for Hamdi, the guy's coming in as a 3-0 uh, professional MMA fighter. He's had a couple bare-knuckle MMA fights as well. Uh, managed to rematch the same guy, which makes absolutely no sense to me as he starched him within 30 seconds in both fights. 
Um, he's an Egyptian uh, Olympic wrestler, if I'm not mistaken, with the Greco-Roman background. Uh, doesn't seem to use it often, right? More often than not, you see him go out there and just starch these guys within the first round. And his striking is very rudimentary. It's what you would expect from a guy that came from a wrestling background. Wide-winging hooks with a lot of power. And it's been paying off for him uh, up until this point. But just as we said in the last fight or, or the last breakdown, as you start taking steps up in competition, it's going to be harder and harder to put these guys away. Dante Mays's durability seems to be decent, you know what I mean? Uh, his size advantage and reach advantage here should allow him to maintain his distance and, you know, chip away at Hamdi from the distance until Hamdi starts huffing and puffing, as we fully expect him to take in this fight on short notice. And then I think Mays can step on the gas and possibly get him out of there later in this fight. I wouldn't even be surprised to see Mays go out there and try to land takedowns of his own later in this fight so that he can truly put the stamp on this and uh, maybe get uh, Hamdi out of there late in the spot. Hamdi, if he doesn't fight like a numbskull, which I'm absolutely counting out here because we saw how he reacted after he got disqualified for hammer fisting the back of somebody's head over and over again and then saying, what are you talking about? I'd do that. And then he got disqualified. He even did it in his bare-knuckle MMA fight. Didn't get uh, warned or anything for that. The guy just has no idea like where you're allowed to hit somebody on the head when you have them on the ground, it seems like. But get putting all that into, into a package, what I'm saying is if he goes out there and just looks to get Mays to the ground and just grind him out slowly but surely, he could win this fight. I just don't know if he has the gas tank to do so. Like we saw him in the, the Clemens fight, like uh, his second or third last MMA fight. He was fighting a guy with the same metrics of Mays in terms of height and reach and all that. Uh, but even in the second round, after like grinding out the guy in the first round, in the second round, you see Hamney start huffing and puffing. You see him like showcasing that man it's tough to hold these guys down it just seemed like he was biding his time waiting for his opportunity opportunity to eventually shoot his takedown once again which he eventually did got the takedown once again then he was able to huff and puff on top of his opponent you know uh, conserving his energy there while still winning the fight from that top position but I'd be surprised if Mays gets stuck on bottom here against a guy who's going to be as tired as he is I think we see Mays really turn this up probably getting that finish in that third round or if he doesn't pulled the trigger enough, similar to what we saw with Volkan Uzdemir this past week, right? Everybody expected Uzdemir to go out there and get that knockout, but I thought he played it safe enough that he's not overextending on these strikes to eventually get taken down by Paul Craig. I'm expecting the same thing here for Mays, where he might not throw enough, but he stays active enough to eventually win this fight on the scorecards, but I wouldn't mind having my hand in the the round three slash decision pop pro here for uh for Mays, as i think that's absolutely possible Mays should win this fight credit to everybody that got in on that early line um yeah hamdi hasn't shown me anything that makes me believe that he's going to go out there and win this fight if he goes out there and just one punch ko's Mays, that's currently sitting at plus 330 all props to him but at a certain point it's not going to work out for him so i'm going to go Mays, Mays round three slash decision what about yourself am i shortchanging hamdi here or do you see the same things that i'm seeing yeah, like I don't think Hamdi's ready for this kind of jump up in competition quite yet, if ever, but at least he's got the wrestling background and there's a couple things he could work towards, but it's just a big ask right now. I was saying on Dogger Pass yesterday, uh, we actually booked Hamdi Abdel Ohab to come fight on that Niagara Falls show a month ago against this fellow wrestler from Montreal. And uh, he couldn't get over because he only has an Egyptian passport. So if he leaves the United States, he can't get back into the United States. So he's like, oh, sorry, I'm going to have to you know, unfortunately turn it down. And then what, like a month later, the guy lands in the UFC. So 
he's not ready for it, man. Like the, he was gonna fight for a thousand bucks a month ago. Now he's fighting for twelve and twelve in a in a on a pay per view and midway through the card against a guy that's already got his feet wet with the promotion is from the area. Uh, big cage, like he's just it's a big uphill climb. You talk about his amateur career. I mean, n- not actually terrible because he's fighting a lot of amateur guys, punches to the back of the head, sure, he's winning the fight. So it's not like that one's necessarily the worst performance going, but uh I go to his pro career, right? So he beats this Matthew Strickland 15 seconds for for game bread uh, bare knuckle MMA, as you mentioned, right? The Conor McKenna fight, Dustin Clements, he's huffing and puffing, he looks tired. He beats this Tyler Lee, 24 seconds. He gets booked against Matt Kovacs, right? That fight was booked a month ago. So he's going to fight Matt Kovacs, who's 41 years old. He's 18 and 19, and he's been around the block a few times. Kovacs pulls out. So they replace him with Matthew Strickland. That name might sound familiar to you because it's the same Matthew Strickland who he fought in his debut and beat in 15 seconds. Now go ahead and click on Matthew Strickland, look at that topology picture, and think to yourself, what the fuck, dude? Now, now from that, a month later, he's going to jump in there with Dante Mays. What he would have had going for him is that Dante Mays was a one-dimensional uh, boxer, right? Very flat-footed. He was a guy that is a little too tall at six foot six, so he's got a high center of gravity, and a wrestler it can very easily get him to the ground. Once he is on the ground, he doesn't really got a ton of game off his back. He generally accepts positions. And the guy doesn't got great cardio. So if you take him to some deep waters, he will crumple up and die over. That's a bad matchup to be taking on a wrestler of any caliber. It's that Dante Mays has been making a lot of improvements. I like what I see out of him. The Rodrigo Nascimento fight, you know, those days are potentially over. But against Roque Martinez, he fought a hard 15. He moved laterally very good. This guy clearly built for the big cage because he's a big man. But he's also got decent footwork. You alluded to the fact that he moves like a middleweight. And I, I agree with you. He's big, tall, lanky. And he's starting to really figure out that range. He's got comfortable. The striking's definitely there. He's got good output. It's the grappling that's improved. His takedown defense looks better. His own offensive grappling looks a lot better. And then, of course, against Josh Parisian, who's big, strong, lumbering, but a big old 265-pounder, you know, he's able to crucify him, get him in a nasty position on the ground, and then elbow him his face off. So... I, I, I like the improvements that I'm seeing out of him at 30. I think he's finally starting to tap into his potential a little bit. And against a short notice replacement opponent that is a one dimensional wrestler. Yeah. I think eventually you're going to snuff him out and, and take him out. If he gets you down early, that's fine. Hold on. As he starts to get tired, the, the shots are going to be a lot more desperate. They're going to be a lot more telegraphed move laterally. He's going to intercept him. He's going to take him down. So I got maze. I got maze inside the distance. The last potential gem that we might encounter is if maze is going to go off at, you know, everyone's saying, oh, shit, I missed the plus 100. I missed the, you know, I missed the even money maze. Now I got to pay two to one. And you will have to pay two to one. But if you just wait till the fight starts, there is at least a chance that Hamdi scores an early takedown, gets on top, sits on top of him for three and a half minutes, maybe even the first round. And then you can get that price tag back on maze. And he's going to put him away after that. So fight doesn't go the distance under two and a half. You know, I would say under two and a half, not the one and a half. I feel better about that. But uh, I think he just takes him out at some point, whether it's early, whether it's late, he's going to catch him. And they get the job done. So I, I got Dante Mills as well. Two, two more things before we move on to the next one. Uh, my guy Hamdi, uh, pretty much really good friends and boys and training partners with uh, Bellator prospect Mahmoud Sebi. Everybody remembers my guy Mahmoud Sebi as pulling off the minus eleven hundred stunts as a minus twelve fifty favorite in his last fight. The guy just absolutely quit on himself there. Did not have the gas tank to do so. Go ahead, Cody. I'll double down one more on top of that. Is that where would was Mahmoud Sebdi fighting before he decided to get cute in Bellator? He was fighting on these goddamn bare knuckle MMA fights. Like that's what he had transitioned over from. It's so it's, like, it's 
it, it's really the the uh, first round management guys, right? They're all signed to Malki Kawa's uh, management team, who obviously represents Jorge Masvidal as well, and that was Jorge Masvidal's uh, company, right? So I think that's why those guys continue to fight over there. And obviously, if you're managing these guys and you have close ties with the promoter, you're gonna get them the best matchups possible, so they can look nice and shiny for these bigger organizations, so they'll eventually snatch them up. But as we saw with Sebi's last performance, it's gonna catch up to you. Your wrestling will only get you so far. You gotta have the cardio to to you know uh to push it all. But if you don't, then you're gonna fall short, just like Sebi did that night, and as Hamdi will likely this weekend as well. And the last thing I'll say, there is a cloud bet prop on this one, Cody. Uh Dante May's total significant strikes over under 44 and a half. What are you thinking here? Uh, well, I would, yeah, see, that one's a tricky one. The over, because he's a volume guy, moves well from the outside. He's just going to pick the guy off, intercept and him coming in. But at the same time, could very well hit the under because A, if he gets taken down, it's not going to be good. B, if he intercepts him and he knocks him out, it's also going to be not very good for that uh, over. So, uh, like my heart, my heart tells me the over because Maze is uh, more of a touch and go guy than a sit down on his punches, but. Yeah, I'll take the over. I mean, like, I, I don't feel great about it. I'm right there with you as well. All right, let us move on to the next fight here. We got two fights left on the prelims, next of which is a lightweight fight between Drew Dober and Rafael Alves. We are seeing money come in on Alves over the last couple of days, but right now we're currently looking at minus 190 on Drew Dober, plus 160 to return on Rafael Alves. A pretty easy fight to break down here, right? Alves either goes out there and gets that first round finish, which, you know, he has finishes outside of round one, but that is definitely his biggest path to victory. Or Dober survives the early onslaught like he did against Terrence McKinney and then eventually comes back and either gets a finish of his own or ends up decisioning Rafael Alves later in this fight or, or over that 15-minute mark. Uh, Dober, the better technical striker, moves very well. Uh, we are seeing a lot more of a, an aggressive version of him over his last couple fights, um, and I think that might play into it positively or negatively here against Alves, as if he does end up overextending too much early in this fight, he could get clipped by Alves, as we saw Alves clip DKC and then eventually follow up with a, uh, a submission of some sort. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Terrence McKinney, once he hurt Dober, he just tried ground and pounding him, whereas Alves... If he hurts Dober, he's more than likely going to be seeking out a submission of some sort, jump on a guillotine, jump on the back, whatever it might be, try to take that on a home with him. The prop that I like here the most, and I'll likely be pulling the trigger on very shortly here, is Alves to win in round one at plus 550. I think that is a damn good prop to go out there and back, considering we know Dober can be hurt early. And even though he survived it last time, does not mean he will likely survive it this time against a much more dangerous opponent in my opinion in the first round than than what terrence mckinney is like mckinney has made his career off of finishing guys in that first round but in that spot against drew dober he was mainly seeking to to club and drum him i'm expecting a club and sub approach here from rafael Alves, as that's usually a you know depending on how hurt you have your guy it could be more reliable than club and drubbing your opponent so uh, i'm going alves alves round 1 i can absolutely see dober uh, surviving that and eventually taking over later in this fight uh possible round 3 situation here for dober which currently sits at plus 1000 or dober by decision which is plus 275 but i don't think he's going to live to see that uh, that second round honestly i think alves finishes him early here what about you? Are you going to give more uh, credence to that chin, that glorious chin of Drew Dober, or uh, do you think Alves gets it done early as well? 
Yeah, I'm worried about it big time because the way Alves fights and the way Dober fights is that Dober's been getting hurt and he's been getting hurt early, right? And the way Alves fights is he's all about it early. So he's going to be swinging for the fences. And as you mentioned, he's got the opportunity to maybe clip him with something, but he jumped on the submission just as quickly. The Mark Casey fight, he outstruck him for the minute of the fight, but just like everything was heavy. Everything was heavy. Finally, Casey's like, I don't want to strike anymore. I'm going to shoot a lazy takedown. And of course, he ends up getting snared up in a guillotine choke. So the guy is dangerous, absolutely. When you look at Dober, his last, Jesus, last number of fights, really. I mean, the Brad Riddell fight, he gets absolutely rocked. You know, he has uh, Riddell hurt early, but of course, Riddell comes back, fires back, has him on skates. He's able to rock that notoriously granite chin and almost get him out of there. Against Terrence McKinney, Terrence McKinney drops him, puts him down. Again, granite chin by Drew Dober, but McKinney almost puts him out of there. The Benil Dariush fight, he was all over Benil Dariush in that first round. And then Benil Dariush, second round, slips him up to the ground, subs him right away. So, I'm I'm worried that a guy like Alves will be able to just come out hot and then Dober needs a little bit of time to get going and, and that eventually catches me. But I did settle on the Dober, Dober by KO plus 165. Uh, Rafael Alves has got 10 pro losses, nine of them inside the distance. So he's not necessarily a guy that's known for his durability. He has these quick finishes, but if he doesn't finish you quickly, you know, it's very taxing on his, on his uh, gas tank. And I think that Dober fights very well against these guys. Here's someone again that has fought world-class competition. He's been in there with the likes of Islam Makachev. He's been there in the, with the likes of Benil Dariush. He almost beat Benil Dariush. That has to be a feather in the cap. Islam Makachev, he went uh, two and a half rounds against Makachev. You know, that, that's got to be a, a credit to his submission defense to a certain extent. He got dominated. But, but all the same, you know, at least he didn't get smoked out of there in the first round. You know who got smoked out of there in the first round? Dan Hooker. You know who they got smoked out in the first round? Bobby Green. You know who at least went two and a half with them? Drew Dober. So, like, I think that he's durable enough to survive that early onslaught by Alves. And then in that second and the third round, Dober is a guy that has good cardio, trains at elevation over in Colorado, and he sits down on his punches and he slings. He's got big power. He's been a fringe top 10 guy. I could see him overcoming the early scare. So I am taking Dober. I would like to just say fight doesn't go the distance, covers you on both sides. But at minus 235, not enough meat on the bone. So then you would maybe go with that, as you're saying, Alves first round, maybe you take the under one and a half, maybe you take the Dober by knockout at plus 165. It just seems like this fight's probably going to be violent. So uh, count me on the Dober side. I know you're taking Alves, but uh, regardless, I think I think someone's going down. Plus 105 is what we currently see for the under one and a half for anybody interested in that alternate total. All right, let us move on to the prelim headline here. Uh, and what better way to finish off Shark Week than have the great white Alex Morono headline the prelims here against Matthew Semmelsberger. In terms of odds, you're currently getting minus 155 on Semmelsberger and plus 135 the return on Alex Morono. Now, uh, we know what we're getting with Morono, right? The guy likes to go out there, put volume on his opponents, bite down on the mouthpiece, throw big shots, move forward. That's his game, right? You wouldn't tell that this guy has a BJJ black belt and he actually has a jiu-jitsu school, but like he just never uses it. He never wants to go out there and actually put uh, that to use. Uh, I remember uh, before the Reese McKee fight, we kind of joked about it. I'm like, hey, he might look to take McKee to the ground here and and actually uh, 
uh, pull it off in that instance, but he never ended up going that or sorry, he did end up landing a couple of takedowns against Reese McKee three to be exact. Um, but uh, they still ended up putting up what close to 300 significant strikes total here. Um, that just tells you what kind of fight that was, even including three uh, takedowns there from Alex Morono. But Morono right now, three fight winning streak. You know, sketchy competition. Uh, Donald Cerrone smokes him out in the first round, uh, goes to a decision against David Zavada, and then obviously goes to a decision against Mickey Gall, where he ended up landing a knockdown there. I like his style, especially as an underdog, to go out there and put the pressure and pace on Summersberger. Now, Summersberger might be the better technical striker here. He might have a little bit more pop on his shots, and he'll likely be able to ding up Morono uh, and make it look good for the judges. But I think that that forward movement um, of Alex Morono will likely sway more so in the judges' favor. And if he can continue to land strikes over and over again, uh, you know, contesting with the big shots that are going to be coming back his way from the Summersberger side, he should likely get the, the judges nod here. Uh, I'd be surprised if there's a finish. I think if there is a finish, it'll likely come from the Summersberger side, you know, sniping him from the outside and 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 putting him out that way. But I'm not seeing, you know, Morono going out there and hurting Summersberger. Summersberger is still relatively young in his MMA career. Very good durability. He should be able to take the shots of Morono. I'm leaning Morono here. And Morono by decision, which is currently sitting at plus 215. Before I ship it on over to you, Cody, there is a uh, cloud bet prop for this matchup as well. Uh, it's the significant strike spread once again. So they got Samuelsberger at minus four and a half strikes, saying that he'll have at least four and a half more strikes than Alex Morono once this fight is all said and done. I'm going to go plus four and a half. Alex Morono, my, my, myself, man, I think he is going to be the one that lands the better and more, sorry, not the better, but more strikes than Samuelsberger once this is all set and done. What are you thinking here? Yeah, yeah, I got to go with Morono again. If, I think it's going to be largely a striking battle for the most part. Um, Morono's at home. He's from Texas. It's in front of the Texas crowd. The judges are going to favor their Texas guy. And it's probably going to be a scrap. Both guys are known for their volume, not necessarily their power. Morono's been there with much better guys. And I think that'll be the difference maker is that he's still only 31 years old. He's still making some improvements, but it's a level of competition. So with Samuelsberger... I almost got owned so bad at this last time. But I, I bet him pretty heavy against AJ Fletcher. I was like, no way he loses. He's way too big. Fletcher's <laughs> making his debut. Samuelsberger's got the experience. He's coming off some good wins. Paul warned me big time. And I remember. Remember today as much as I remember when he warned me. He goes, who is this guy being? Well, he beat Carlton Minus. Oh, shit. That one really doesn't count for much, does it? Will he beat Jason Witt? Mm, yeah, right. That one doesn't really count for much, no, does it? Will he beat Martin Sano? Oh, shit. Yeah, that's a good point, right? So he melted Sano in, in 15 seconds. He melted Wit in 16 seconds, and he went the full distance with Carlton Minus in, like, somewhat competitive affair, but he definitely won all the rounds, but, you know, it wasn't like it was a complete route. What has he really shown you? He's big. He's gangly. He's tough. He's definitely, you know, big and physical for the weight class. But, uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of limitations to his game. I didn't see it then, but I noticed it in the A.J. Dobson or the A.J. Fletcher fight where Fletcher's way stronger than him, right? He's able to easily take him to the ground. Once they are on the ground, he's able to out-muscle him. Uh, Semmelsberger shows some good defensive grappling, right? Enough to stay out of harm's way for the most part off his back, but doesn't have a great get-up game. I mean, he's long. He doesn't have, like, that quick explosiveness back up to his feet. As a result, this is a really close fight. He loses the first round, no doubt. He may lose the second round. It's very close. And in the third round, he just like, he's getting taken down and he hits like a quick sweep and ends up on top. That saves him. 
His cardio didn't look good. He's taking on a guy that was making his debut that was gassed after five minutes. So, yeah, maybe there was a lot of vulnerabilities to his game. Alex Morono, meanwhile, you can't look at his resume and say not impressive guys because even though Pettis is no longer with the company or Donald Cerrone recently retired, it's like he's actually fought in some legitimate guys. He beat Max Griffin. You know, he's been in there with uh, – with a higher level of competition, and he's give her, given a better count of himself. Of course, we know that he's a BJJ black belt. He has a nearby academy. He's going to have his students out. And I think he could get into that slugfest and win based on his striking. I mean, he's got some decent volume. He's got a good counter right hand. It knocks out Cerrone in the first round. I know Cerrone's, you know, done, but I think he looked good in that fight. Looked like he's starting to make some progression to his game. But you, you of all people, own me one time. Yes, you. You own me one time when you said, I think he'll take down Riz McKee. I'm looking <laughs> at the, he's going to probably take down Riz McKee, and there was an over on some takedowns. I, I, I laughed. I said, dude, zero takedowns <laughs> against Williams, against Griffin, against Otto, against Song Kanong, against Jordan Mean, against Josh Berkman, against Kaden Nakamura. Dude, he had, at that point, nine <laughs> fights in the UFC and had scored, effectively, zero takedowns. And yet, he took down Rizmiki three times and battered him. And in the third round, in particular, they're going to stop. They're going to stop it. It goes the distance. And I remember yeah. in his post-fight, he's like, I should have just took him down earlier. He was like, yeah, man. No, duh. Yeah. What's the point of getting a black belt if you have zero intentions on using the fucking thing? So this to me screams much of the same. Like he hasn't wrestled since there is McKee fight. He did take Pettis down once, but Pettis is a black belt. Donald Stroni is a black belt. David Zawad is a black belt. Mickey Gall, I think he just got awarded his black belt, if I'm not mistaken. Definitely a brown belt, but I think he's a black belt now. Yeah, he is. He is a black belt. Those guys are all black belt. Maybe he didn't want to take down them. Maybe he didn't want to try to overexert himself. Like, you know, it's definitely all possible. But, like, in this fight with Semmelsberger, seeing how much success that A.J. Fletcher had taking him down, I would say not a terrible idea to strike with him in pockets and then have your corner be like, you know, two minutes, 90 seconds, and then shoot that takedown. If you realize you're not getting it in the first or second round and you're tiring, abandon the game plan. But if you can take him down, and there's a possibility that he can, he'll have a lot of success on top. Just got to get there first, so... Sign me up for Morono, and I'm going to take the Morono by decision. I love it. I love it. I'm glad that we're on the same dog here. I don't know why, for some reason, I expected you to be on the Summelsberger side, but I'm glad that you are here on the underdog side with me as well. I pulled the trigger at plus 136 as an official bet, but even as a prediction, I feel pretty good about it. All right. That is a wrap on the prelims. And Cody, believe it or not, we're still getting numbers close to it as if we were doing it at 5 p.m. Shout out to the 200 live viewers what? that we currently have with us. Make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe for the All-Star if you haven't already. Normal time for us is 5 p.m. Eastern on, on Thursdays. That's kind of where we're going to be settling on, you know, moving forward. Obviously, we got uh, things that we need to do today, hence why we're pushing it out early. But we appreciate all 200 of you guys. Again, hit that like and subscribe below. If you're watching this on the back end, make sure you guys drop a comment below. Let us know what your favorite prop is for this upcoming card uh, and we'll see how it ends up doing come the fights this weekend. Uh, also, shout out to betonline.ag, another big sponsor for the show. Um, usually the first on the market in terms of having props and odds for all UFC fights, but not just UFC. Bellator, KSW, Octagon, BFL, all that stuff. BetOnline.ag has you covered. Hit the link in the description below, and they'll match your initial deposit uh, 50% up to $1,000. So make sure you guys take full advantage of that. And then lastly, shout out once again to CloudBet. We've been sprinkling their CloudBet props, the special props they make just for our show uh, throughout the card. Uh, there are a couple other ones that we're going to be talking about. And then on the back end, we'll talk about the full event props that CloudBet has set up for this card. All right. 
let's not waste any more time. We got a big fight here in the light heavyweight division, likely determining, you know, who's going to be, uh, you know, chipping at that title shot coming up here soon. We got Magomed on Clive, 17 and one, taking on the 36 and 16 veteran Anthony Smith. The obvious chalk here on Magomed on Clive at five, minus 520, plus 410 is the return on Anthony Lionheart Smith. Very intriguing fight here. We know Anthony Smith will definitely push Magomed on Kalev, at least more than Thiago Santos did last time around, right? Very underwhelming performance uh, to a lot of people from on last time, going the full five rounds against Thiago Santos. And although he didn't get the finish, I don't blame the guy for going the full 25 minutes, especially considering that was his first opportunity to go 25 minutes as uh, he was, that was his first ever main event slot and first ever five round title fight in, or sorry, five round fight in the UFC. That is likely getting him ready for that eventual title shot that he will see, especially if he's able to get past Anthony Smith here, which I totally believe he will. Now, there are some concerns that Smith brings, right? The guy's a fighter. The guy will go out there and he'll push the pace. He'll try to put the volume on you. And we saw Nikita Krilov try to take that same attempt against Magomed Ankalaev a couple of fights ago. And what did Ankalaev do? He goes, oh, you know what? I'm not just a great striker. I'm not a striker that can just, you know, fight from the southpaw and orthodox with just as much fluidity as the other stands. But I can wrestle too. And that's exactly what it looked to do against Nikita Krilov, dragging that fight to the ground over and over again, controlling it for the vast majority of that fight, and then eventually winning via decision there. Here, I could see him taking the same approach against Anthony Smith, right? It wasn't that long ago that everybody was ragging on Anthony Smith for having horrible takedown defense and not being able to get back to his feet, right? And funnily enough, it was only two fights. It was the Glover Teixeira fight, and it was the Alexander Rakic fight. I remember everybody picking, or most people picking Devin Clark in Smith's next fight because they're like, oh, Clark can just take him down and grind him out like Rakic did. But Smith obviously clipped him and managed to have tremendous success uh, in that spot and then in getting that finish early there. But I think you need a guy of Magomed on Kalaev's level, a guy of Glover Teixeira's level with their grappling to be able to get these guys to the ground and grind them out. So the spot that I like here, you know, instead of taking Ankalaev at minus 520, let's take it by decision, right? Smith, very durable, very tough to put away. You know, he's had his teeth knocked out and still wanting to continue to fight like he did against Glover Teixeira, although he did end up getting finished there. That was a five-round fight. This is a three-round fight. I think we see Ankalaev take that path of least resistance, taking Smith to the ground over and over again and grinding him out from on top. Unless he doesn't have this crazy flub like he had against Paul Craig in his UFC debut, he should go out there and grind this fight out over 15 minutes. So Ankalaev, by decision, currently sits at plus 110. I'm seeing plus 105 at certain places. I think that's the spot for this fight. Um, there is another spot that I'll let Cody throw out to you guys, but uh, I'm going to go Ankalaev, Ankalaev by decision, and hopefully setting myself up for a title shot or at least a number one contender fight with possibly the winner of next weekend's main event, which is Jamal Hill against Thiago Santos. What are you liking here, Cody? Yeah, I'm liking Ankalaev, Ankalaev by decision, and then furthermore, to play it a little bit safer, just the fight to go the distance. I think that it's a pretty good price tag on it all around. Ankalaev, if he wins this fight, he probably plays it safe, uh, takes him down, establishes top control, and you know just grinds him out. Even if he decides to stay at standing, he's just very methodical with his approach. He doesn't mind allowing his uh, to be the counterpuncher. He likes to be aggressor and just kind of stay out of harm's way, allow you to overexert yourself, allow you to throw something, and then counter back with a one-two. It's not exactly the most entertaining but it is effective it all leads to decisions though could he do a little bit more sure but he just opts not to and play it safe and that's fine but i mean i would think if he wins it's a decision if anthony smith mean mean uh wins meanwhile 
it looks like he's a first round killer, no doubt about it. He just finished Ryan Span. Ryan Span's outside of the top ten. Jimmy Crute is outside of the top ten. Devin Clark doesn't even fight in the weight class anymore, but is certainly outside of that top ten. He can finish those guys in the first round. He's been in there with some of the best guys in the game. He's savvy. He's got a nasty jab. Striking's pretty adequate. His uh, BJJ black belt, you know, grappling's pretty good. But his takedown defense is not great. And his ability to get back up is not exactly great. You've seen in the past, Rax took him down. When Glover took him down, it was an absolute mauling. But even low-key, these like fights back in the day where he would drop early rounds and then have to come back and make this third-round comeback. Andrew Sanchez beats him for the first two rounds. This Leonardo Guimaraes guy like put a beating on him in the third once he tired with the ground game. His ground game's always been a little too much based on going on all fours and just taking too much damage. Even Glover had to mid-fight apologize to him and be like, Anthony, I'm very sorry. <laughs> I have to do it. And he's just like, it's okay, man. <laughs> Smack, smack. And it's like, holy shit. But that's his problem. He goes to a turtle shell defense and takes a little too many shots. Ankali is not one to swarm, so I don't think he puts him away. But I think if he's smart and his coaches have done the research, the takedown's definitely on the table. Um, Yeah, and, and so if Ankali is going to win by decision, if Smith's going to win... It's going to be on Ankalaev playing with his food. He's going to stand too long, and it's going to allow Smith to just keep the fight standing and just get his jab going. If you look at Ankalaev versus Nikita Krylov, he spends the first round standing with him and actually gifts Krylov the first round, loses the first round on the judges' scorecards. Second and the third round, he gets to wrestling. Once he does that, he's able to clearly win the fight. But one has to wonder why did he stand so long with Nikita Krylov? He does the exact same thing against Tiago Santos. There's a clear advantage on the ground, and yet he just opts not to use it. He stands in front of him. He ends up getting clipped in what was it, the third round? Third round, he gets clipped, goes down hard. And it's like, oh my God, we are up in smoke. And then he gets back up and, you know, he decides to play with his food a little bit more. But wh why is he not going out there and wrestling? I don't know. But I think he's more with one of these striking Russians than wrestling Russians. Of course, he can do it all. And the guy's supremely talented. But I feel like he's more comfortable striking. If he goes out here and he decides to strike with Anthony Smith and Anthony Smith gets that his jab going, you know, uh, Mark Montoya, one of the best coaches in the game, they're going to be prepared. They're going to have a strategy. They're going to exploit the low kicks, work his calf. Shut the calf down, and then right. I will say this. Down. Sorry, just a quick uh, interception there. Uh, apparently, he's not working with Mark Montoya for this uh, for this fight, which is interesting to me. I, I got ankle live, yeah. ankle live by decision. <laughs> this thing's a wrap. This thing's a wrap. Did I say I had it by decision? Sorry. I'm thinking it might be inside <laughs> now. Um, no, but, yeah, but I'm going to take ankle there, live. But, yeah. but I got fight yeah. going the distance. Yeah, the I agree with you there. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree that we see this fight go 15 minutes. Uh, again, Uncle Live trying to get as much of that cage time experience as possible. And again, like, majority of his fights, they're going to decision in the UFC, right? Like, he's taking Dalcha, uh, or sorry, he finishes Dalcha, but like, Clips late, in the Bray, you can lose the mirror, Tiago Santos. So like, yeah, exactly. And Smith, again, very difficult to put away. So uh, I do like that prop that you put out there. Fight goes to decision. Absolutely on board with that. I'm going to take it a step further. I'll go Uncle Live by decision because I do think he'll be able to get that win there. All right, let us move on to the next fight here. We're going to be talking about a big flyweight fight now. We got Alexandre Pantoja welcoming Alex Perez back to the cage here. In terms of odds, we're looking at minus 190 on Pantoja, plus 160 the return on Alex Perez. Now, we haven't seen Alex Perez inside the cage since he uh, went out there and lost to a Davidson Figueiredo in November of 2020. That seems like an eternity ago as we are approaching two years since that fight actually took place. But he's had... Plenty of fights fall out in between then, most notably between Matchnell and Askar Askarov, but now he finally ends up drawing Alexandre Pantoja here. 
I will say this though: the last time you scheduled a fight, Machado back in February, he missed weight by two pounds. Uh, didn't end up cutting the rest of it, and she was like, "You know what? Even though I was the one that fucked up the last couple matchups we had, I'm not taking this fight." And he ends up, uh, you know, obviously we see him get that Sumo Darji fight afterwards, and then he gets the win there. Uh, but I, I'm I'm not thinking that this is as much of a walk in the park for Pantoja as people are expecting it to be. There's a reason Alex Perez used to be a big chalky favorite in a lot of his fights. He has a solid wrestling game. He has a decent volume striking style. Uh, he's fallen in love with that calf kick as we saw against Jussier Formiga. He didn't really get to implement against Formiga or sorry uh, against Davison. But I wouldn't be surprised to see him try to utilize it here against Alexandre Pantoja because. Given the fact that the majority of his losses have come via submission, I'd be surprised if he's going to be looking to utilize his wrestling advantage early in this fight. Now, Pantoja has kind of been known, or not known, but been given the title of uh, being a guy that starts to slow down later in fights. And I was one of those guys I used to say back in the day. Seems like he's somewhat shored that up. But if this fight remains a striking battle and Pantoja, you know, he is the better technical striker just as Matthew Semmelsberger is the better technical striker than Morono can he deal with the volume that's potentially going to be coming his way and how are the judges going to be seeing that uh and how will they score it if if they see Perez going out there and you know staying active with his kicks with his punches and then maybe mixing in takedowns later in this fight Pantoja should win this fight Pantoja should go out there possibly even club and sub him eventually getting that uh, submission finish at a certain point in this fight but I'm not sold on this fight at, at all, uh, Cody. I'm completely back and forth about this from the totals to the sides to, you know, the props. I really don't know which way to play this. Like you can go Pantoja by submission plus 300, Pantoja inside the distance plus 180. Or if this does go the end uh, or end up going the full 15 minutes, Perez by decision would not seem like a bad spot. And that's currently sitting at plus 330, as I do think he'll have the better minute winning opportunities and game plan in the spot. The over two and a half at minus 145 is a little bit intriguing. But again, what if Pantoja comes out there with that knack for that calf kick? He saw how effective it was against Jussier Formiga. And this is a guy that's always been a, a kicker to begin with. But over the last couple of fights is now where, is where we're starting to see him uh, really start to change the target of that kick. He used to aim for the thigh and the upper knee area, but now he's been starting to go to the calf and he seems how effective it can be against his opponents. So prediction is Pantoja, Pantoja by sub, but I really just want to sit back and watch this fight play out, especially to see what kind of Alex Perez we're going to be getting considering the layoff that he's been on. And again, the, the level of competition he's going up against here after such a long layoff is going to be tough. So uh, I'll go Pantoja, Pantoja by sub, but Honestly, none of my money is going to be touching this fight. What about yourself? Yeah, this is the toughest fight on the card to call, in my opinion. I think on one hand, Pantoja should be the clear favorite. He's got good experience. He's got a nasty right hand. He's got the good Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Good submissions. He's on a tight little win streak right now, and he's training at American Top Team. So it's like all music to your ears kind of stuff, right? On the other hand, I think that he's in for a live fight against Alex Perez, a former title challenger, hasn't fought since he fought Figgy. And it's two years ago, but he's still only like 30 years old. So he might be one of these guys that's taking two years off and is going to come back more refined as a better version, or he might come back and not be so great. If he's not so great, Pantoja is going to look like easy money. If this guy comes back as a, the same guy he was when he left and maybe even a better version, he's a problem, man. He's got tremendous <clears throat> combination boxing, good volume. We saw in the, the Jose Torres fight back in the day, this guy lands like 
80 significant strikes in the first round or something ridiculous. Pretty crazy. But he's got good volume. He's got good wrestling. His jiu-jitsu is good, despite the fact that he did get submitted by Davidson Figueredo in his lone move, the guillotine choke. Like, goddamn. It happens. But that doesn't take away from the fact that he's a good scrambler. And I think that uh, training at a Team Oyama, they're going to have him prepared for this fight. I suppose I do want to see the weigh-ins and see that he's going to make 125, that he's not going to make 126 and completely look ill on the scales. But if he can go out there and push any type of pace against Pantoja, I think he would have some success. Pantoja, again, a very talented fighter. But if you go back and watch, say, the last three, right, the Askar Askarov fight, he gets taken down, he gets controlled, he has no volume in that fight, he looks lethargic. He just generally doesn't look a whole lot very good against Askar Askarov. He only needs a couple takedowns in that spot. I feel like Perez could hustle up a couple takedowns and outland him. Could be a similar spot. But even the next two, the Manel Cop fight, Manel Cop, and everyone remembers this, didn't do shit in that fight. He yeah. was his debut in the UFC. He stood at him. He stared at him. And he didn't do anything. And a lot of people still cried robbery. I don't know why. I thought Pantoja won. But not a very good fight, to be truth be told. And it was Manel Cop was the one that did not do anything. Then he takes 16 months off. And he'd be Brandon Roy Val, who's very a, a very erratic fighter. You know, you can look good against him because he's there for the taking. But you know, Matt Schnell had him knocked out. Like other guys have his, his Brandon Moreno has his shoulder dislocated. Uh, Pantoja catches him with the second round rear naked. Like you know how Roy Val fights. It's kill or be killed. He's very very chaotic in there. And as a result, Pantoja looks really good about him. But I keep circling back to the prior two. The Manal Cop fight and the Askar Askarov fight didn't look all that good. You know, <clears throat> so how he matches up against Perez probably good. But if Perez comes in shape with good submission defense, pushes a pace on him, starts to land combinations, starts to move him backwards, he's going to be a serious problem. So I almost want to take that underdog shot on Alex Perez, but the two years long layoff, everything I've just told you is more narrative base than actual like concrete evident base. And I can't be, uh, I can't be stupid like that. So you said the same thing. It, this fight not getting none of your money. It's kind, I'm kind of in the same boat. I've got it really low on like my list of confidence, and therefore my uh, my commitment to spend money on it is also very low. Yeah, uh, uh, and this is a big spot for both guys too, right? So who knows what type of uh, approach we're going to see from either guy. That's why I'm even questioning the totals in the spot. So we'll see how it goes. All right, let us move on to the next fight here. We're going to be talking about a heavyweight slugfest. We got Derek Lewis trying to make up for his uh, fumble last time in front of his home crowd. He's going up against Sergey Pavlovich, and seems like money coming in on Pavlovich as the week has gone on. He's currently sitting at minus 135, plus 115 is the return on Derek Lewis. And we see this time and time again, Cody. We know the skill set or lack thereof <laughs> that Derek Lewis brings to the table every time he steps inside the cage. But his equalizer is that crazy knockout power that he's able to put on his opponents. And no matter if you're Cyril gone or, you know, the, the bottom of the barrel guy, Derek Lewis always has an opportunity to go out there and knock you out. So just because he got knocked out by Ty Tuivasa last time around, that's why I believe the money coming in on Sergey Pavlovich now to make him that favor is like, oh, Derek Lewis got knocked out last time around. He's probably done. He's probably going to get knocked out again by a guy in Sergey Pavlovich who's been KOing guys left and right during this current run that he's on since he lost his debut to Curtis Blades. But like Derek Lewis is always live. He's always live. What I've been saying all week is if you got plus money on this fight from the money line perspective, more than likely you got the, the, the best bet possible, right? No matter what side it is. Pavlovich is likely to get a knockout. Derek Lewis completely able to get a knockout in this spot. I lean more so the Derek Lewis side. I do think uh, Pavlovich is going to be in for a rude awakening, you know, feeling that big power of Derek Lewis early in this fight. 
And I think it's going to be one of those spots where we see uh, Lewis get him out of there pretty early. Like um, round one, Derek Lewis currently sitting at plus 275. On the flip side, Pavlovich round one is plus 180. This could be one of those spots where people try to get cute and take the over one and a half, which is like plus 110, plus 115. And I know Derek Lewis has been going to those uh, decisions every now and then and has won a couple of decisions actually as well, which a lot of people don't expect him to. But I think he's going to come out with a little bit of a vengeance, try to make up for that uh, fumbling the bag that he did last time around against Ty Tuivasa in front of his hometown Houston crowd. Now he's out in front of Houston this time around, but he's still in front of Texas, which is his home state. I'm expecting him to go out there, bring that big power, land on the chin of Pavlovich and get him out of there. So give me Lewis, Lewis by KO. Not a ton of confidence. Plus 165, plus 150 is what you're getting on that. Well, what are you citing here? Do you see anything else that's kind of like pointing you one way or another? Or do you see this pretty much the same way that I do? No, I just honestly think it's two middling heavyweights. Derek Lewis is, of course, a two-time uh, UFC title challenger, and you can't take that away from him. But he's a career overachiever that, you know, hits a couple huge moments and got to some huge spots. Most guys in the division could beat Derek Lewis on any given night. It just yeah. depends on what version of him shows up. And with Pavlovich, he's had four fights in the UFC. All four of them have ended in the first round. So uh, is the guy able to go to a second round? Because if he can't, he's in some serious problems. But... It's the same thing I'm hearing about all week about Derek Lewis. Ah, Derek Lewis is washed. His chin's not as good as it used to be. The dude in an alternate universe knocks out Ty Tuivas in the first round. He's got him hurt. He's got him rocked. The heavyweights be heavyweights. Like, MMA is a very unforgiving sport. If he wins that fight versus, versus Ty Tuivasa, we're talking about Derek Lewis taking another run into the top five of the division. Unfortunately, Ty gets back up, knocks him out, and now we're talking about Ty making a run to the top t- five of the division. It's splitting hairs, right? So, of course, when you fight that big game where you're 270 pounds, you're going to get out there. You're going to throw strikes predominantly. It's going to make for a greasy affair for sure. So I could see live underdog for Derek Lewis, but I, I kind of got to lean with Pavlovich. Like Lewis is there for the taking for most guys. I will readily admit his two biggest weaknesses striking anyways seem to be uh, his uh, de- defense to the low kick as well as um, his shots to the body. And Pavlovich doesn't actually throw any shots to the body and does not kick. So if he's going to headhunt versus Derek Lewis and stand in front of him, Lewis is going to happily oblige and, and throw back. This fight doesn't seem like it's going the distance. The reason why I went with Pavlovich, just like, again, theory more than anything, one, the guy actually does come from a wrestling base. He knows how to wrestle. So he's got fast hands. He's got an 84-inch reach, which I believe is the second longest reach in UFC history, like next to John Jones is 84 and a half, but a freakishly long reach. He's in excellent physical shape. The guy's absolutely yoked up. He's got fast, quick boxing combinations, and he can wrestle. If he decides to strike, he's playing with fire, but he will have some success using that long reach and uh, just quicker hands altogether. If he opts to wrestle, he could have a lot of success because, of course, Derek Lewis tends to give up the takedowns. The last thing, and this is kind of what solidified it for me personally, is, uh, you know, I can question just like everybody else. Geez, Arakdumal, first round. Maurice Green, early, first round. Marcello Golem, early, first round. Overeem beat him early, first round. Fight before that, Kirill Selednikov, 2017, early, first round. This Mikhail Monikton fight, right? The guy fights at 205 now. But he's like a multiple-time Russian and world combat Sambo champion. Uh, He's a big boy. The fight went 25 minutes. Pavlovich fought all 25 minutes. He looked pretty fresh in the fifth round, still moving forward, still throwing combinations. So I don't think he's got a cardio problem. He might be an EPO, but if they can't prove it, what's it matter? Does it matter to us? Can't avoid a ticket months later. So I think his cardio is actually low-key, not bad. 
He's got fast hands. He's got some wrestling. He might be able to dig his, in his back pocket. It's enough for me to edge it towards him. But I, you know, I, I, I could see myself losing this bet, losing money, looking like an idiot. I'm fully ready to accept that. It's a Derek Lewis fight. I get it. But I think Pavlovich has got enough tools that I think uh, he, he's going to be a problem and he's going to go out there and, and pose some difficulties to Lewis. If he can get a full MMA game going here without uh, getting newt, absolutely live to win this fight. But that is pretty much every single Derek Lewis fight. And he could do it against Curtis Blades. And he could do it against uh, anybody else. But uh, maybe he does it here against Pavlovich. We'll see how that plays out. All right, let us get to the first title fight that we got on the card. It is an interim title. Let's not forget about that. We got former champion Brandon Moreno rematching Kai Car France from a fight that took place, I believe that was way back in, yeah, December of 2019, the same card where Usman fought Covington for the first time. Now here's the rematch between them in terms of odds. We're getting minus 210 on uh, Brandon Moreno, plus 180 to return on Kai Car France. Just to give you guys a some some perspective, the first time they were actually matched up against each other, Kai Car France was the minus 160 favorite, plus 140 was the return on Brandon Moreno that night. And Moreno went out there, you know, he toughed it out that first round. We saw uh, Kai Car France have some decent success there. But in that second round, Brandon Moreno just got into his groove and was touching up and battering Kai Car France on the feet. And I, I am hearing this narrative that, like, the first fight was close and I kind of get it. The first round was the closest of it. But after that, Brandon Moreno really started to put the foot on the gas and he was just touching up Kai Car France. It from that instance, from second round on, it didn't look close to me. Like he was entering and landing big strikes on Kai Car France, and Kai was landing his own strikes, but I felt the more damaging and more significant strikes were coming from the Moreno side. He was able to get in and out of range without getting hit too much and countered very effectively. Anytime that Kai tried to throw in the pocket, Moreno did a good enough job in terms of moving his head, getting out of the way, leaning backwards, and then dipping right back in as Kai finished his combination and he threw his own combination, which ended up uh, damaging Kai Car France even more in this spot. Personally, you know, I thought, and a lot of people actually thought, that the only way Moreno was going to win that fight was if he was able to get Kai Car France to the mat. He didn't even shoot one takedown that, that fight. And he outstruck him soundly in rounds two and three. I'm expecting a complete repeat of that as I'm expecting a better version of Moreno, which, you know, we have to in in tow as well, uh, expect a better version of Kai Car France. But I feel like the improvements that Kai has made will still not overcome the advantage that Brandon Moreno will have in those striking exchanges. We saw like those big improvements from Kai in his last fight against Askar Askarov, pulling the upset off as a big underdog. But still, uh, I don't think any of those changes and uh adjustments that he made in the Kai, uh, Askar Askarov fight is going to pertain too much to hear what, uh, with what Brandon Moreno will be doing. A uh, couple more things I'll just quickly sh- shot off here or shoot off here. James Krause, now in the corner of Brandon Moreno. Obviously, we all know what happened in the lead-up to the last Davidson Figueredo fight for Brandon Moreno. Apparently, it was a horrible training camp for him. Like, he just could not get things going with his head coaches and stuff, which is why he ended up leaving that camp after that fight. Ended up teaming up with James Krause. We'll see what kind of approach Krause is going to be able to instill in Moreno. But he doesn't really need to change anything up, man. He can go out there and just do what he did last time around, and I think that will be more than enough for him to go out there and get that win. The intriguing thing here would be if Kai looks to approach this with a grapple-heavy game plan. What if he's the one that goes out there and starts shooting takedowns? But that's just not his game. That's not his style, right? So we kind of uh, uh, be super confident that he's going to go out there and have tremendous success in that realm. 
I'm going Moreno. I'm going Moreno by decision. Kai is difficult to put away. Uh, and, and the last thing I'll say here before I flip it on over to Cody, actually, it has to pertain to the cloud bet side of things here. So first and foremost, uh, the first ever prop bet that cloud bet put out there was actually a future. And the future was uh, for who is going to be the first person to get a title shot in 2022. And actually, I've written my text messages here with my correspondence. There were names like Hamzat Shmaev, Islam Mahachev, Benio Dariush, Sean O'Malley, Askar Askarov, Kai Carr-France, Sean Strickland, Bilal Muhammad, Conor McGregor, and John Jones. You were getting 20 to 1 odds if you had bet Kai Carr-France. They closed this market down once Kai was actually scheduled for this title fight. But he was 20 to 1 to be the first person to get a, tw- a title shot in 2022 based off of those 10 names that I said to you. Personally, earlier in the year, I put my money on Askar Askarov at 4-1 to one, as I expected him to go out there and get that win over, over uh, Kai and then eventually get that title shot. But it was Kai who had the last laugh that night. He ends up cashing as a plus uh, $2,000 underdog to get, that, uh, to get that shot. And then lastly, the uh, significant strikes matchup here. So this is another spread that we have here, Cody. Brandon Moreno, minus 19.5. Kai Carr France, plus 19.5. I think I'm going to go with the Moreno over, or sorry, Moreno minus 19 and a half. I think as this fight starts to go deep, he will start to pull away with the numbers here, and he'll likely have more than 20 significant strikes landed against Kai France, in my opinion. But official prediction, Moreno, Moreno by decision. That line is currently uh, Moreno by decision, plus 140, sign me up. What do you think of your Cody? Yeah, I got Moreno. Moreno by decision plus 140 as well. The concern would be that if one of them is going to finish, it would be Moreno. If I'm worried about Kai Carfrance potentially pulling the upset, I don't mind this fight goes the distance, which is like minus 145, minus 150, simply because you and I both expect Moreno to win and, of course, use some wrestling, win some striking exchanges in the pocket, win the fight by decision. If Kai's going to win, he's not submitting Brandon Moreno, and I really don't think he's knocking Brandon Moreno out. So he might be able to pinpoint, you know, win some exchanges, stand up, and, and all this and that. But ultimately, I think what Moreno brings to the table, which is just more pace, more grit, more determination, the takedowns, mixing them in certainly here and there would help out. And to be honest, I'm really excited to see this James Krause thing. I know some people are writing it off. Oh, it's just another, just a coach and it's just another gym. And it's not like Glory MMA Fitness is even one of the premier gyms in the world anyways and not going to help them. But like, as far as I'm concerned, okay, and you're a, you're a connoisseur of the sport, so you know, James Krause, awesome coach, correct? Oh, yeah. Gets results in the UFC, correct? Known for giving poignant, good, straight advice, correct? Right which there. top, which top guys has he ever worked with? You know, because he gets always the fucking Zach Cummings of the worlds and the Tim Elliotts of the worlds and guys that are just grinders who are mid to low level in the skill department, and they go out and they win. They put together the proper game plan he's got megan anderson there's nobody in the weight class she fought for a title tim elliott fought for a title zach cummings overachieved largely throughout the course of his career right he's had all those those good moments right with lower level competition with low level talent right he can do that he's a good coach with brandon moreno this is the first like world-class guy he's worked with this is the first world champion that's shown up to his door and been like help me and I think now working with a guy like that would allow you to take your game to the next level as well, right? There's so much that you can work with. Now, keep in mind, the first time he fights Davidson Figueredo, he lands four takedowns. He shoots eight of them and actually gets four. That's the reason why he ends up being close down the stretch. That's the reason it ends up being a draw is because he wrestles him. 
The second fight he fights with Davidson Figueredo, he takes him down twice on two attempts and ends up choking him out. The last time he fought Davidson Figueredo, he at no fucking a point was like, I think I should wrestle him. It was a bad game plan. Bad game plan. Kraus is the right guy to be like, this is what you do best. This is what your opponent doesn't do best. This is how we're going to capitalize on that. And I think that mixing in the takedowns will go will now be another staple part of his game. With Kai Kara France, of course, he's an excellent striker. He's a city kickboxing guy. But being able to take him down is going to go leaps and bounds, right? Askar Askarov, well, actually, even before that, really, uh, Bren Roy Val, right? The Bren Roy Val fight, he rocks him twice. Rocks him twice, gets him down, submits him. That's bad news because Brandon Moreno is one of these guys that's going to throw down in the pocket, land heavy strikes, and is opportunistic with his submission game. So he might be able to catch him with something. But the Rogerio Bontran fight. Bontran shows up terrible at weigh-ins, right? Looks sick. Takes him down easy in the first round, controls him well, for three and a half minutes of the first round, and then slinks off and just quits on himself and gets knocked out. But he wasn't looking good in that fight. Garbrandt shot to bits, and then he can get the Askar Askarov fight. He gives up two takedowns in that fight. He got controlled for f- over five minutes of that fight. <laughs> but watching it back is worse than watching it live. It's the fights in Ohio, okay? Every time Kai Car France does anything, you would think that he was the most famous person ever from Ohio. I don't know who the most <laughs> famous person from Ohio is. Maybe Thomas Edison. No, Drew Carey. Drew Carey. Come on, MMA one. Ah, Drew Carey. <laughs> Drew Carey would have been the most famous just with the Drew Carey show and whose line is it anyways. Uh, yeah, but right, you go right. and throw prices right in the mix and it's like, okay, all right, all right. Uh, yeah, They just go wild for him. Every time Askar Askarov does anything, boo, because everyone's paying for more money for oil because of the war in <laughs> Russia. It's hot. People are pissed. Yeah. And they fucking let Askar Askarov have it. So it, I, I thought Kai won the fight, but it was actually a close competitive fight, and nobody thought that. It was very unanimous. Kai beat this guy up. It's kind of low output. He does give up the two takedowns. I got to assume in a fight with Moreno, Moreno's just going to double up on you. Uh, Kai does give up those takedowns to other guys. Moreno should be able to get them. Kraus will have him fighting that kind of game plan. And I just think he gets the job done. So I got Moreno by decision. I've also got the fight to go the distance at minus 150. Yeah, I can't believe we both overlooked King LeBron James from Ohio as well. Oh, shit. <laughs> you know what? LeBron definitely more famous than Thomas Edison. Uh, Andrew Carey. Yeah, Andrew Carey. Andrew Carey. Maybe both of them. Because if you ask the, like a casual person... What's Drew Carey famous for? They might not know. What's Thomas Edison famous for? They might not know, sadly enough. Uh, but LeBron, come on, come on. Everybody knows Everybody LeBron's knows. famous Everybody for. Knows. Yeah, Space Jam too. There you go. And uh, and I any opportunity I'll get to do this, shout out to our guy DXJC. Whose line is it anyway? Top tier shit. I absolutely the best. Oh, I yeah, the best. Line is anyway. Shout out to Colin Mockery as well. All <laughs> yeah. right, let's move on to the main event here. Shout out to the 220 live viewers that we currently have. Make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe below. Shout out to betonline.ag as well for sponsoring the show. Link to sign up for Bet Online is in the description below. They'll match your initial deposit up to 50%, up to $1,000. Sorry, I should say. And then obviously, CloudBet will be talking about a couple of the CloudBet props here very shortly. But uh, make sure you guys go show them awesome love it as well. If you're watching this after this fact, make sure you guys drop a comment below as well to let us know what your favorite prop is for this UFC 277 card. All right, Cody, we got the main event ahead of us here. We got Amanda Nunes looking to recapture 
her bantamweight title from Juliana Pena. In terms of odds, we're looking at minus 275 for Nunes, plus 230, the return on Juliana Pena. A far cry from the minus 1100 that Amanda Nunes was at last time around and the plus 700 that Juliana Pena was. And I kind of led the podcast off with my kind of you know thoughts on how that for why the first fight went the way that it did and to me it was because of the confidence that or confidence slash cockiness that maybe uh nunes had going into that fight dusting women left and right since her title capturing performance back at ufc 200 against misha tate she seemed unstoppable she was going on and defeating women left and right and finishing most of them as well and not only finishing them but she got joe rogan in the corner stroking you off saying you're the biggest most nuclear power hitting woman of all time so you always have that scapegoat of if things are not going my way let me just throw leather and more than likely i'm going to be able to get your uh you know get your head knocked into the fifth row she tried it against juliana pena it didn't work out that way so I'm fully expecting a, a reinvigorated and more motivated version of Amanda Nunes here to go out there and play a smarter game plan, right? Her leg kicks on that first round against Juliana Pena were working very well. She laid off them in the second round and eventually got dragged into a firefight. And that's ultimately what uh, forced herself to, well, not forced her to gas out, but like Pena did something in terms of dragging her into that slugfest, which eventually wore down Nunes. She got the takedown. She gets the back. And even before sinking in that rear naked choke, Amanda Nunes was tapping. Like that, that choke was not in. You can say whatever you want. She was gassed. She knew she was done. She ended up tapping out there. But I think that was a big wake up call for her to, there to be like, okay, I got to go back and remind myself what got me to being on this run, got me to being in the discussion of greatest woman fighter of all time. And I think if she taps into that, she should be able to go out there, devise a solid enough game plan to put together and beat a girl like Juliana Pena. Pena is not this crazy cardio centric, you know, the, this fighter that everybody's making her out to be after that last performance. There's a reason Nunes was as big of a favorite as she was there. I do think it was a little bit overblown considering all the hype that was on her at that time. The line probably should have been closer to maybe minus 500 rather than minus 1100. But I do think that we see itself see it correct itself here with Nunes going out there, finding a much smarter game plan. And uh, I'm thinking outpointing Juliana Pena on her way to a decision victory here. But the line that I like the most, especially if you guys can't stomach going the full... Um, Wow, the line got even better now Now that I'm looking at it. Uh, is the over two and a half. I thought that was going to be the widely available line here. The over two and a half currently says at plus 150. Over one and a half is minus 140. I wouldn't even mind taking a shot on that. But I'm fully expecting them to both be a little bit more cautious going uh, into this fight, especially on the Nunez side. And I think that will force this fight to go into the third, maybe even fourth round. I'm thinking it goes the full 25 with Nunez getting her hand raised via decision. And that line is currently sitting at plus 450 for her to win by decision give me that give me uh, another and new and another double champ status for amanda nunez here what about you what are you thinking here yeah again agree with a lot of your points i'm actually going to go with juliana pena but there's four very nice tickets that a man could hit in this fight all alone he could hit that minus 205 on the over one and a half you could hit the minus 115 for the over two and a half you get a plus 130 for over three and a half and a plus 170 for over four and a half. I think this thing's getting rounds in, man. Oftentimes, because the first fight was very quick, 
the natural assumptions like, oh, it's going to be quick again. Rose Namajunas versus Juani and Jacek. Oh, she knocked her out quick the first time. It's going to go down. No, the second time there's adjustments being made. You know, you're a little more cautious. You're a little more careful. You're a little more hesitant. And as a result, you bank some rounds. So Amanda Nunez might not have been in the greatest shape the last time. She may have quit the, the second the fight hit the ground. But this time around, she'll have a little more fight in her. So if Pena wins, Pena's going to have to get it done in those later rounds. Meanwhile, Nunez Nunez landed her best shots on Pena the first time, as far as I'm concerned. Did hurt her. Could knock her out. Of course, she could knock her out. But if she doesn't, she's going to need to settle on relying on her grappling a little more in this fight and pacing herself out and not overexerting herself, which all leads to more rounds, right? So I think that you're going to have a lot more timid of an approach for Amanda Nunez. And with Juliana Pena, she understands that there's big power coming back at her, but needs to take her time, chip away, puts money in the bank, and then eventually cash in in those maybe three, four, and five. So... If that's the case, yeah, I'm looking to hit some overs <clears throat> in the rounds. But, yeah, I mean, Connor Burks put the tweet out. I'll give him credit for it because, you know, fucking good dude, first of all. But he took the effort to fucking write it all out. But in immediate rematches, like, the champion doesn't typically get the belt back. Like, you lost. Like, that's it. And this list, the outliers, Davidson Figueredo against Brandon Moreno. But the rest of them is... Rose versus Zhang Wiley, Stipe versus Cormier, uh, Alexander Volkanovsky versus Max Holloway, TJ versus Garbrand. Like, whole list goes all the way back to Randy Couture versus Vitor, which is a bullshit fight because it was a cut stoppage. Bullshit cut stoppage, really, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Randy proved he was a better fighter than Vitor. Because it's that. It's that once you lose that belt, it's very difficult to get it back. In Nunez's case, she's 34 years old. She's a multi-millionaire. She is the lady goat. As much as I might not be the biggest fan of her, uh, there's no way that you can take away anything from her. She knocks out Ronda Rousey. She knocks out Holly Holm. She moved up a weight class. She knocked out Chris Cyborg. She's done stuff that nobody else has. She's been there, done that. But there's no doubt about it that her four best fights, five best fights, beats Misha Tate, 2016, Ronda Rousey, 2016, Shevchenko, 2017, Raquel Pennington, Cyborg, Holm again. That leads you to 2019. She has not looked good since then. Jermaine Durandamy fight, she looked bad. She looked stale. She looked lethargic. Didn't want to strike with her, understandable. But considering you knocked out Holly Holm in the first round, knocked out Chris Cyborg in the first round, you would think that she maybe had a little bit more standing, but didn't. Easily takedowns. BJJ Black Belt really didn't do much. Didn't pass guard. Gassed out after three rounds. Bad performance. The fight versus Felicia Spencer. Okay, well, you could definitely outstrike her. Didn't even want to strike with her. Was just like, I'm going to take her down and control her. Don't really want to engage. And then Megan Anderson. Megan Anderson, even James Krause couldn't help her. Nothing you can do in that fight. She got easily submitted. But at no point was I overly impressed. She's also a fighter that de dealt with a deviated symptom for a long time. She generally tires out in her fights. She's got two wins over Valentina Shevchenko, but watch them back. She fades out and loses the later rounds in both of them. So I, I just, I, I don't know. I'm not sold on her cardio. And I think she finally got exposed by Pena. I wish I was on Pena that night. I wish I cashed in that big juicy underdog money that night because you could see the writing on the wall, but I missed it. And now they run it back and they're going to give you plus 265 on Pena. Like, it's just too good to look away from. So I got Pena. I got Pena by decision. But beyond that, over one and a half, two and a half, three and a half, maybe get greedy and hit that four and a half at plus 170 because I think Pena will beat her down the stretch. And even if I lose that Pena bet and Nunez wins, I would think she's going to beat her down the stretch. So. I'm looking to hit over under rounds and uh, over for the, for the most part. And then, yeah, culminating in an official pick, which would be the underdog, Juliana Pena. And how does she get it done? Well, you could see her submitting her again because of the way it went down the first time. But more often than not, I think uh, I think she just grinds her for some either a late, late stoppage, like fourth or fifth round stoppage or decision. 
I will say this. Uh, I, I saw somebody say in the comment section in regards to, you know, Juliana Pena has shown that she can go out and grind out of a fight. But, like, have we quickly forgotten about three fights ago against GDR where she gets guillotine choked by a kickboxer? Like, I, I'm not fully sold that, like, she can absolutely do that here, especially if she's going to get touched up the way that I expect her to get touched up early by Nunes. Again, she Nunes does have a little bit of gas tank issue, but I'm not thinking that Pena is this world beater when it comes to the cardio side of things either so there's I'll, that question I'll, mark in my I'll tell you something though when I used to watch Juliana Pena back in the day like when she was off coming off the ultimate fighter and you know fighting Eric used to interview all the time and she's batshit crazy back then same as now but like this was someone who was actively with it good shape beats all these girls by just breaking their will taking them down grinding on them and winning she beats Jessica I she beats Kat Zingano those are very quality wins back in 2015-2016 and then she wins the first round against Valtteri Shevchenko busts her up you know like puts it on her winning the second round versus Valtteri Shevchenko and got caught in an armbar from that point she took 3 years off had a kid right that changed everything because when she came back, she looked like shit against Nico Montano. She did. She looked awful. She got taken down by a much smaller fighter. Not a good look. And then subsequently, she takes another year off. It was actually 15 months and then came back and fought JDR. Likewise, looked like shit. Then that Sarah McMahon fight didn't look great by no stretch, but the longer the fight went, McMahon was going down. And Pena was like, she's getting back to that rhythm. And I personally didn't think that was enough to now beat Amanda Nunez. But in hindsight, because that's the glory of hindsight, my friend. You look back on things. It was like she needed a couple starts. She needed a couple starts to get tight again, to get back into the rhythm, to fight on a much more regular routine. And when she fought Nunes the last time, you got to think about this as someone who's now 32 years old and has fighting has not paid her no money. And she's had a couple of knee surgeries and uh, she hasn't fought in a few years. And the money's not quite there. Now I got a kid now and I'm married. And the other girl's a multimillionaire. So who, who wants it more? Who wants to go out there and change their lives more? Pena. Pena went in and she fought like she wanted it more. She took her best shots. She went tit for tat with her. I, I guess you shouldn't say that for women's MMA. She went toe-to-toe <laughs> -to -toe with her. She did exactly what she needed to do to eventually break her down. And then I was saying this to Paul yesterday. I'm like, it wasn't as if Nunez gassed in the third or fourth and like the, the wheels came off. She gassed in the second round. Second round, she is fucking done, right? She's 34 years old. Is she all of a sudden going to change the script and, and, and jump back. I, I don't know. And, and then I'll, I'll, I'll admit another thing. This is why that stupid goddamn Davidson Figueredo is the outlier. But all these champions that, you know, attempted to get their, look at all these great champions. Frankie never gym jump. BJ never gym jump. Benson Henderson, <clears throat> Weidman, Anderson Silva, Max Holloway, Jose Aldo, Rose Nama Yunus, Joe, uh, everybody. TJ Dolce is a gym jumper, but keep in mind he won the title after he had left and he was always loyal to Bang Ludwig. That was his head coach for a very long time. He wasn't loyal to Team Allen for me. Just keep that in mind. And then stupid goddamn David Sid Figueredo. He breaks the whole trend because he's the only guy to get the belt back in the immediate rematch. Then he bucks the trend because he's the only guy that ditched his gym and went to fight ready MMA and they had him ready. So I was like, God damn it. So if Nunez would have gone to fight ready MMA, I'd have been shaking in my boots, my friend. No, no, no. She opened up her own gym in South Florida. Wow, good luck with that one. I got Juliana Pena dog money. Let's see how it goes. One of the cloud bet props that are actually offered for this fight, and I'll pose it to you. I feel like we're both going to go with yes, but will this fight go longer than their first fight? So the first fight went with 8 100%. minutes and 26 seconds long. Uh, you're getting yes, which is minus 182, and no, which is plus 154. We're both going with yes, correct? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. I love it. All right.
That's a wrap on the breakdowns here. Let's quickly go over the cloud bet props that we have for you guys for this card, as well as our three best prop bets that we'll get on out of here. So let me just add it to the page here. First of which, how many of the debutants will be pulling off a victory this weekend, Cody? We got Adam Fugit, uh, Hamdi Abdel Wahab, and Ihor Pretoria. I'm going to go with uh one of them i'm gonna go with fugit at plus 104 but again you can obviously bet him straight up here but again we've seen crazier things happen i'll go with one what about yourself one two or three or none of them yeah again i'd have to see what parlaying the three opponents against each of them would pay but yeah i have the zero i have them all losing which at 250 is not a bad price tag so uh yeah fugit's short notice abdel wahab is short notice and Pretoria. Sketchy. Yeah, it's super <laughs> sketchy. So to me, I was hoping they were going to have how many guys from Texas win. But yeah, yeah, go on. Uh, fight of the night. So last week, obviously, there was no fight of the night because they gave out more performance bonuses. But if they do give out a fight of the night this weekend, uh, what are you thinking, Cody? I'm going to go with Car France and, and Moreno at plus 600. I fully expect that to be a barn burner for, you know, I expect that to go the full 25 minutes. And I'm expecting it to be the funnest fight on the card. What about yourself? Yeah, I'm going with Rafael Alves versus Drew Dober. Alves is going to go out and try to put it on him. And he will either succeed in doing so or Dober takes a beating early and comes back. But like all that shit's high dramatic. Uh, and I think that's usually what leads to a fight of the night. So your, your pick's good because you got an extra two rounds to work with. And of course, co-main event is going to be high stakes. But uh, the way Alves fights and furthermore, the way Drew, Drew Dober comes back, I, I think that's got a good uh, chance of cashing at plus 1,000. I like it. All right. Main card takedowns. So just for the main card, over under nine and a half takedowns we're going to see. Over under nine and a half on the main card. Okay. So so you got Juliana Pena Nunez. Might get two out of that. Moreno versus Kai Car France. I would say you'd at least get three out of that. Get Pajet five. Pavlovich Lewis might not have any. Prez versus Pantoja. Both guys are good grapplers. Like you might got, not get any. Magomed and Kalayev, he should take Smith down maybe twice. Oh, they're cutting it close. Whoever said it at nine is like knew what he was doing. Because I, 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 in my calculations, it's going to hit right around like eight or nine. So um, I would hit the under. I would go with the under nine and a half. Yeah, I'm going to be right there with you at the under nine and a half. I know Uncle Ive will probably be the one that seeks out the takedowns most here, but even then, I think he's only going to get like two or three. So, uh, yeah, under nine and a half for me. Uh, main card total completed rounds. What are you thinking here? Main card completed total rounds. We're getting three out of Magabat Ankle of Anthony Smith. I'm I'm going to say we're getting three out of Pantoja versus Perez, but yet six. Might get a round and a half out of Lewis versus Pavlovich. Seven and a half rounds. Moreno versus Kaikar France going to go another five. That's 12 and a half. Main event, I'm thinking it's going to go later. So, like, what was it, what was it set at? Because I would take the half. over. Oh, yeah, then I'm taking the over. For yeah, sure. I'm, I'm going sure. over as well because yeah. I see both title fights. Got like, title fights. The full five rounds. So, uh, you got 10 right there. You only need three from the rest of it, which you're 10 right there. Like you again. <laughs> 10 right there. And then you've also got a uh, Russian in Magomed Nikolaev that is very cool with just banking rounds and yeah. has gone to decision his last couple and a flyweight fight. So uh, you, you could very much get some rounds in here. Yeah. Uh, total takedowns on the entire card. So that's total takedowns. It's that over card. under 25 and a half. I'm going to say two for Koski, even though there's a huge wrestling advantage. It's not like he needs 10 of them. Uh, Nigga Mariano, maybe I'll count him for another two. 
the Edwards Kim fight will probably produce like a greasy fall to the mat, gets counted as the takedowns. Maybe we're looking at five there. Michael Morales, geez, you know they're both wrestlers. Maybe this produces a couple as well. I'm gonna call it Let's six. Four, four, Rafa five, Garcia. Six. Rafa Garcia might be able to get three on close. Close might be able to get another two back on him. Uh Maze versus oh, he's, he's taking on a guy that knows how to wrestle, he's an Olympian, but he's not gonna get taken down more than once, maybe there. Um Dober Alves, 15, 16. Total takedown on the whole card, I would maybe say probably about 24, 20, yeah. 24 takedowns. I'm, I'm going to go with the under there. It's going to be close, but at 25 and a half, I'll probably go with the under there. Yes, that's what it is, 25 and a half. Yeah, yeah I would take the under as well, 25 and a half, and hope that we get some violence. And in Texas, when one, they got to tell you, okay, the fans are rabid. They want to see action. Yeah. Second of all, the judges... They don't count takedowns. <laughs> so it's like, oh shit, I had better go out there and have a good time. There you go. A uh, couple more here. Who will request? Uh, who will record the fastest finish on the main card? I'll fastest go Derek Lewis plus finish, 700. Yeah, I mean, listen, you can't go wrong with the Derek Lewis first round finish, right? Um, yeah, the main card seems a little light for finishes for me. So, so I would probably actually take Sergey Pavlovich. I know we're going against each other, but. I think that's the fight that we can recognize someone's getting finished. Yeah. So you got one side, I got the other. That's completely understandable. Whereas everything else, you know, Pantoja, Kaikar, France, Smith, Moreno, like everybody else could be in for a decision. So, uh, yeah, I would think by de facto, that's the fight. I got the other side of it. So I'll take the plus 500 for Pavlovich. And then fastest finish on the entire card. I'm going to go Kosia plus 1900. What about yourself? Fastest finish on the entire card. I am going to go with, yeah, geez, this is a non-violent card now that I really think about it. I'm going to take, I was going to say Drew Dover, but no, I'm just going to take him at least a round and a half to get going, right? Uh, yeah, sorry, sorry. I, this is this one's not as hard as I'm making it sound. Uh, where Raphael, is, obviously, that plus 2,700 is not bad. No, no, that, that, that's probably what's going to hit, but you know me. I'm not going to take it. Dante Mays, Dante Mays, plus oh, 1,700. Wow. Listen, this other guy's not very good. And once he gets punched <laughs> in the face by big old Dante, then we'll see what's up. Yeah. So uh, plus 1,700, and they're heavyweights. Yeah, sign me up on that one. There you go. And we already talked about that last prop there, which is will the Pena Nunes fight go faster or longer than the uh the first one? We're both going with yes at plus or sorry at minus one eighty-two. All right, let's yeah, get into these three best prop bets and then we'll get out of here. First of which is always me. I'm gonna go Magomed on Clive via decision at plus one ten. I'm expecting Anthony Smith to push the pressure in terms of the stand-up and striking, which will force Uncle Live to likely take this fight to the ground, and he should be able to grind it out from top pressure, which will make this go the full 15. Cody loved the fight goes to decision at minus 135. I'm liking the decision specifically on the Uncle Live side at plus 110, so I'm going to get a little bit greedier there. Next up, I'm going Rafael Alves, or Rafael Alves, round one, plus 550. I think he gets uh, Dober out of there pretty quickly. We're seeing the deteriorating uh, chin and durability of Dober and although it's you know saved him a couple of times in the last couple of fights I think Alves is just a different beast I'm looking for a club and sub situation here for Alves similar to what he did against Mark D. Casey maybe not a flying knee this time around but still a big enough shot to put Dober on skates and then follow up with the submission round one plus 550 and then here's my tinfoil turban pick of the week I'm going to go G.U. Kim via KU at plus 1000 I've seen the durability issues that Jocelyn Edwards has flashed in some of her fights but i think she's ultimately going to succumb to the 
the the fire fist, I believe is uh, Kim's nickname, the fire fist of Kim. Hopefully she can find that body and get Jocelyn Edwards out of there and cash this plus 1,000 ticket. It's been a while since I've had a four-digit prop for you guys. Uh, I thought I might as well bring you out here with Kim and hoping she can get her second finish inside the UFC. All right, Cody, you're up next, my friend. Yeah, well, we're going to go with Ankalaev Smith. Fight goes the distance. It helps you out because you've got already Manpreet's giving you the Ankalaev by decision, which I don't disagree with. And then me taking the coward's approach, but it's only like <laughs> over 45 points difference. It's not like it's a drastically yeah. different price. If Ankalaev by decision was plus 150, plus 200, it'd be like, I got to chase that. But I think I'll take the safe route. Do I think he wins? Yeah, absolutely. But what's my worst case scenario? The dude's got limited ring IQ at times, it looks like anyways. And if he stands in front of him and throws jab for jab, could get greasy. Both scenarios, I'm hitting this fight goes the distance. So minus 135 there, sign me up. Moving on, we got Michael Morales by KO up minus 120. Again, man, pre brings up excellent uh, points with uh, Fugget that he's maybe not so bad. He can rest a little bit. He's got the BJJ. To me, it seems like if he fights world-class guys, you can put a little pressure on him. You can grind him out. You can take away his grappling off the table. You can hurt him and put him away. And I think that's what Morales is going to do. I like this guy's tenacity. I like his wrestling. I like his physicality. And I think that now that he's won a couple fights at a higher level, He's making a little bit of money. He's able to invest himself. 23 years old, getting better and better. And, of course, just knocked out a, a middleweight in his last fight. So I think he takes the takes the cake here at minus 120. And then, yeah, we need a little bit of plus money somewhere down the line, right? <laughs> decision, and it might be a close decision, but I do think he ends up cashing it. Rafa Garcia is going to look to wrestle often. Close is going to look to sprawl and brawl. But I think eventually the, the fans are going to rejoice with more of the striking. They're going to get in close, get behind him anyways. And, uh yeah, I don't know. Like, part of me is worried because of the whiplash he suffered against Jeremy Stevens, and will it happen again? The other me thinks maybe the time off is good for some of these guys. Makes you reanalyze things. Makes you it changes your desire. You know, when you can't do something, when something's taken away from you, that's when you want it the most. When you're fighting three times a year, you get burnt out. It seems to me like this is a guy that's reinvigorated and wanting to go out there compete at the highest level. So. Hopefully he's able to go there and get the job done. And yeah, yeah, I mean, listen, it doesn't look as good as your Kim plus 1000 uh, because yeah, it's definitely good looking, but women's MMA, man, it can be frustrating. A couple of weeks ago, we see, uh, you know, Jessica Panay, she's hobbling on one leg. It's like, just put her away, Emily Decote, but can't do it. Last week, this one was greasy because you and I both cashed on Victoria Leonardo as an underdog, but like, did you notice she'd get hit to the body and she just shut down? I was like, Oh my God. Like she's hurt, but girl got an excellent poker face and Mandy bone didn't really throw enough strikes to really capitalize, but it was like, Dan, they're hurt. And then the fight just don't quote got there. I can envision it now. Kim's got Jocelyn Edwards half curled over. <laughs> she lays off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She hasn't got Eric Nixick with her anymore, you know? Like, so, well, I guess she's got Hickman, so she'll be okay. Um, I, I like where your head's at, though. My, plus 1,000. I had suggested the split decision at plus 800. Yep. So if we can either get a knockout or a split decision win. I'd be pretty cool with it. We, we can pound our chest if that ends up happening here. Uh, there you guys go. Three best prop bets for UFC 277 from yours truly and my guy, Cody Saftik. Cody, I'll give you the platform one last time for anything you want to say to the guys before we get on out of here. Yeah, that's it. That's all. We're back into regular contender series form. So I'd like to start recording some contender series previews if you guys are into that. And of course, you know, PFL or Bellator or whatever happens to uh, pop by, we'll try to cover that stuff. 
And then, yeah, this weekend's card, I think it looks good. It looks greasy per se, but 13 fights. I think there's at least six or seven good spots. We went over some props that we really liked as well. So some value to be taken into consideration, but not something you got to go crazy with. Um, so, yeah, anyways, I'm going to take a vacation after this, take a few days. I'm definitely going to tweet out picks for the UFC. I'm definitely going to put my best foot forward, and I'm definitely looking to cash some money and make the vacation that much better. But, uh, yeah, enjoy yourself, right? It's summertime, right? Don't take all these cards too seriously. And uh, you'll always have another opportunity next Tuesday for Dana White's Contender Series. So uh, it was a decent first offering this week. And hopefully we hit the five, four or five fight PRP the next time. Yeah, Dana was very adamant that he's hoping to see more from these guys come the second week. Maybe we'll see some more finishes. Maybe we'll see some guys straight from their game plans and end up getting knocked out or something like that. So uh, volatile is going to be the key word for Dana White Contender Series. So be very careful when you guys are betting it moving forward. Go ahead. It was super weird because like sometimes the fights aren't that good. He gives them the contract. Sometimes the fights not that bad, and he won't. It might have been the contract. season opener, so he's just like, I wanted more action. Maybe yeah, that's like Rizvan guy who's a Russian heavyweight from last season. Like he yeah. put an absolute beating on the guy and stops him in the third round. Doesn't get a contract. Goes on to the regional scene and he's just dusting guys in Eagle FC now. Like damn, dude, this guy moves well for a heavyweight. Like, he's got some yeah. go to him, but. I don't know. Dana's like in a party. Boom. We can get yeah, the exactly. in the back. I want to see blood. <laughs> He's like 30 days sober and it's just like, fuck these guys, man. Yeah. You go fight for it. Like a little bit of a different ball game. But I remember Alonzo Menafield beat Boatwright. What was his name? Yeah, Boatwright. Boatwright. He beat him in like eight seconds. And he did yeah. not get a I know. <laughs> what more so did weird. you do there? Right. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I see Dang. that. You know, I forget her name. Female boxer, like 145. She's actually is fighting in the UFC. Yeah, what the hell was that about? She looked I like know. shit. She won. They signed her. She was already 35 or something. Now she's like 37, hasn't fought in a few years, and they've just like, I don't know, the whole thing's a mess. But I love watching it, man. What else are you going to do on a Tuesday? Realistically. Exactly. There you, you go. My best to hit you up at CJ Saptic. If you got like anything pertinent or important, hit up Manpreet or hit up Paul Shea because like they always do deliver the message so like I'll get it through that way but uh, yeah all I gotta say is good luck enjoy the fights guys there you guys go we did eclipse our record so far on the all-star in terms of live viewers it was 230 before we hit 235 so we got five more than we were used to before the margin on to 300 live viewers is uh, continuing on but uh, maybe we'll hit it next time when we get back to our 4pm EST start time uh, again appreciate everybody checking out make sure you guys hit that like and subscribe if you haven't already and we will see you guys next week to break down Tiago Santos against Jamal Hill very fun fight there can't wait to see how that one goes down and can't wait to see what props me and Cody are able to uncover for you guys. War Jiun Kim via KO this weekend. Hopefully that comes through for us and maybe even a close via decision so my guy Cody can hit some plus money, prop money as well. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Good luck on all your bets, folks.